This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. Today, the day before the weekend. Woohoo! Or does it begin today? Man, I'm telling you, exciting, exciting day. Got a lot of great uh, content and topics for you today. Holy cow, we'll be talking about the American economy and how it might be paralyzing us. How much of our political world is uh, surrounding our fears of the American economy. We'll get to that with Adam Seth Levine. He'll be joining us to talk about his book, American Insecurity. Also, uh, of course, an update on... Um, what's going on in Charlotte and and uh, had a, a quieter night, I guess, a safer night last night, plus um, other news coming out about uh, the the Tulsa the um, the charges that were uh, placed against the uh, female officer involved in the shooting in Tulsa. We'll be getting to that information and celebrating today Restless Legs Awareness Day. Yeah. You ever just get restless leg, uh, dancing legs, I guess. It's a, it's a real deal. Restless leg syndrome. Today's Restless Legs Awareness Day aims to promote awareness of this medical condition or syndrome. It's held on the same day each year to coincide with the birth of Professor Carl Axel Eckborn. He's the Swedish neurologist that first described the disease in 1945. I don't have restless leg. I just can't sit you just, for long periods of time. Yeah. I need to move. You just got jumpy legs. Excuse me. Uh, did you say Adam Levine is going to be on the show? Uh, Adam Seth Levine. Different. different is that Adam his brother? Levine. No. Same name, but his brother? No, it's a different guy. Different guy. I think is um, he's actually more of a PhD economist yeah. than maybe... A tattooed rock star. A, a tattooed rock star. On Sadie the voice. loves Adam Levine. Really? She's so excited he's he's going to be on the show. It's not him. Uh, she will be disappointed greatly. She needs to watch less of The Voice and read more. Would it be funny to bring in the Economist? The Economist with Adam Levine music. Now that would be fantastic. We probably had a plan on that. I'm sure this Adam Levine has moves like Jagger too. Do you think The Economist would recognize the music of the name? I would bet so. This, I'm sure this Adam Seth Levine is super hip. Do you think he's tired of people making the yes. okay, connection? Yes. Okay. It's one of those things where you just really don't like your name. We'll it's, it's like me where people go, hey, South, it's, it's a direction. You like – just want to punch him, and right then they ask. They ask me if I know like Steve North. Do they like, really? Why would I know Steve North? And they go, well, you know, directions. Right, right. It's uh, yeah. I don't get that. I yeah, get. I, I get, get a lot of. Are you related to Pete Townsend? No. From the from the who? who? And I'm like, no. And especially Pete's had kind of a storied air quote past. And then he gets OJ and the. Cartoon. I've got yeah. it the worst. Yeah, that's true. Are you related to OJ? Right. Is Homer well, your you? dad? Are you related? You know, Uh-oh. I told Terry Second this. Second cousin. Uh-oh. My grandma. There we go. She's no longer living, but her name is Marjorie Simpson. Marge. <laughs> Did your grandma have blue hair? And it was three feet tall. Oh, my heavens. 
Hmm. That's amazing. Things you find out. The things you find out about others. Hey, today also hug a vegetarian day. Here comes a spud. Now they are free. Now they are free. Hmm. There goes Sadie's going to pull a muscle. Yes. It's one of my favorite vegetable songs right there. That's called Vegetables. And if you really want something exciting, go look it up on YouTube. The vegetable song? (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty amazing. It's by Colt. Okay. (sighs) Coit. Okay. Same diff. Yeah. I can't see that far. He was just playing two potatoes as as bongos. Was he really? Yeah. Actually, it was one potato playing two potatoes as Three a bongo. Three potato playing four. Four. Okay. I remember when I played potatoes as a bongo. <laughs> that was fun. Those were the days. So we've got all that fun ahead, plus crazy stories. Um, sometime in the show, in the three next three hours, we're going to talk about a nail gun. Mm. Always watch out for the nail gun. That's all i got to say about that. So let's get to let's get to all that fun. But first, uh, a little more fun and insight into the headlines. Sadie Nelson joins us. She's done dancing. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? A new television ad from Hillary Clinton features some of Donald Trump's degrading descriptions of women, spoken in his own words as a series of teenage girls are shown looking self-consciously at themselves in the mirror. The 30-second spot, airing in several battleground states, concludes with a question on screen. Is this the president we want for our daughters? This ad is notable for the Republicans' comments about women in a race that includes a candidate who would be the nation's first female president. Relatives of Keith Scott, the black man who was killed during an officer shooting during in Tuesday on Charlotte... North Carolina announced Thursday that they have viewed footage of the incident taken by police dashboard and body cameras. In a statement released through attorney Justin Bamberg, the family said the videos left them with more questions than answers. Earlier in the day, police chief Kerr Putney said the footage would not be released to the public. While appearing at a town hall event Thursday afternoon in Colorado Springs, Mike Pence told reporters that Trump and I believe there's been far too much talk about in- institutional biases and racism, racism within law enforcement. The Republican VP nominee's comments came in response to the recent police shootings that have led to national protests, including the ones that turned violent evening that turned violent Wednesday evening in Charlotte. And finally, yes, a California hospital unveiled the newest member of its security staff. A robot charged with patrolling the emergency room parking lot. Huh. Mm-hmm. Charged. Because they plug it in. Yeah, Go you got to charge it. Always Good one, charge Terry. your robot. Good one. Just working hard over here. <laughs> Bakersfield Memorial Hospital op- officials said the egg-shaped robot, which is about as tall as a human child, is equipped with cameras and sensors and allow it to navigate around the parking lot without a human assistant. So it's egg-shaped and the, as tall as a human child. Yes. So about two feet tall. And and wait, this is the best part. Oh, go ahead. It is programmed to say a friendly hello to anyone that meets it in the lot, includes hello. a security button, and it can summon the facility's human security officers How if necessary. Are you today? Really? Yeah. It's pretty cool. This is what we're doing now? This is the future of our robot, robotic so, ro- community. Robots are taking human jobs. This is going to happen. Wow. And you'll just see it slowly so instead over time. of having... Oh. Whoa. Oh, boy. I am a robot. There you go. Wow. I am a robot. Oh, but this, he's stuck on the curb. 
Poor guy. <laughs> wow, Sadie, thank you. That uh, I'm not sure I want to see a robot when I get to the ER parking lot. Do you? Like, please move your car. You seem to be bleeding this way, please. That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I will call for help. Wow, that is uh, that's neat. Your insurance is not covered here. <laughs> that's like default settings right there. Yeah. <laughs> Please keep moving. Nothing to see here. The uh, robot, uh, I guess it just circles the, the parking lot probably. The size of an average human child, I guess. Two feet tall probably. Two why, and a half feet. Why not just say two feet tall? Yeah. I think people have a better understanding of a child versus two feet tall. Well, do they? Because like, are we talking a, a big child? Are we talking like a big – Tough skin, hefty wearing kid. We're talking the dainty little, yeah, tiny child. Whatever. It's Friday. Kind of have an attitude today. <laughs> so uh, Donald Trump and Hillary getting ready for the big, the big debate. It's on Monday. Yeah. Hillary. Is now we always hear that Hillary has been calling in psychologists to figure out how to upset the Don. Yes, she's trying to knock him off with uh, just if you make him a little bit angry, he's going to launch into some tirade and America will see yeah. him for what he is. Which is... Unhinged is kind of hell. Yeah, he'll come unhinged. What's Donald doing to prepare for the Hill? Well, the New York Times this morning has a piece uh, where they give some, I guess, insight because they don't really have... It's not like they're getting quotes from the campaigns. Their sources say. Right, right, That's how right. this all works. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton getting ready for Monday night's first presidential debate. Pretty much exactly the way you would expect. Clinton is working with a cadre of experts and, and analysts and Democratic veterans to get her ready to go toe-to-toe with Trump. While Trump is all but ready to go by uh, flying by the seat of his pants. Whoa. So he's just going to wing it. Clinton will be – it'll be important to be on the offense – and uh, unnerved Trump by calling him out on his unreleased tax returns, lies, and to get a rise out of him by questioning things like his net worth. <laughs> if you question his net worth, yeah. it's like you're questioning his existence. Yeah, That's what he's kind of, you know, in the past, that's how he's reacted. Ms. Clinton has concluded that catching Mr. Trump in a lie during the debate is not enough to beat him. She needs a, the huge TV audience to see him as temperamentally unfit for the presidency and that she has the power to unhinge him. According yeah, to the New York Times. So, so then they're setting this up to say that as long as he doesn't become unhinged, he wins. Apparently. That's the way they're reading. Yeah. This is Trump, who hasn't had much of an attention span for preparing for the debates, is being urged to focus on the big picture <laughs> and not be provoked by Clinton calling him out on his lies. His advisors see it as a waste of time to try to fill his head with facts and figures. Instead, they want him to practice staying focused on big picture themes, jobs, terrorism, protecting the homeland, closing borders, and making America great. Again, hmm. rather than picking fights on side issues or taking the bait from Mrs. Clinton. Interesting. So he's not doing anything except they're teaching him to just stay focused on the big picture. I think he's just going to go in there and bring up Hillary's health issues. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Hillary, do you need a chair? <coughs> do you want to sit down for a minute? 
Somebody get a fan. So Clinton is spending most of the weekend practicing how to react if Trump insults her or picks at her over issues of uh, trustworthiness or even her husband's past infidelities. Trump has waved off traditional debate prep, even as his advisors worry he's not getting the practice he needs. Hmm. I think Trump has an advantage. Says who? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Says Donald's guys. Because he can't. All he's got to do pretty much is show up, look presidential, don't say anything incredibly stupid, don't be mean and offensive, keep breathing. So are you saying that who has the lower bar he does. to get over? He does. Okay. She, we already know, is spending all of this extra time. She spent like the last three days preparing – well, Plus, longer than that. Yeah. She's been doing this for the last month. But like like full on, not, nothing else on her schedule, just preparing, preparing, preparing. So she's going to come prepared. And if he just, I mean, personally, all he needs to do is get her into a coughing fit and this thing's over. I'm going to beat her so easily. I haven't even started on her yet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe I mean, it's like we're, it's like Frazier Ali. We're. Getting ready for the, the fight the, of the century. The predictions for how many people are going to uh, watch this right. are astronomical. H- how big? Because apparently Reagan had 65 million people listening to his debate against Mondo. Granted, a different time. Yeah, 65 million people. We have more options. This is on a Monday night. <laughs> we have Netflix. There is a football game on. That tends that, to draw a really, good chunk of people yeah. away. But we'll have less than, I will bet, less than 10 million people. Really? You think? I don't know. That's not very many people relative to. Uh, like a Sunday night football game gets around 20 million. Yeah, we won't have that. You don't think that? I bet you at most 15 million. Some think this will be the most watched debate in history because it's the first one. There's a lot of anticipation. You have yeah. a wild card and mm. then Hillary's trying to you react. Think? Yeah. I don't know. It'd be fun. I mean, I, I might watch it. You might? You're going to come in the next morning and expect to I'll talk probably, about it. I'll watch it. But I don't – I'm one of those that are frustrated by this whole thing. Yes. I'm exhausted. I, I don't know if there's anything positive going to come out of like the last year and a half, two yeah. years of all this time spent talking to these people. Do you remember – In the end, I don't know what the purpose is. Do you remember the ancient art of leg wrestling? No. Where you, you, lay, you lay down and you put your legs up and you try to force the, your partner's leg down. Okay. You, you don't remember playing it's that? It's like arm wrestling but with your yeah. leg. Yeah. I think that's how they ought to do this. Really? Okay. Hillary wear a pantsuit. <laughs> Donald and Hillary do is, three is out of any, five leg Is there wrestling. anything else in her closet? Probably not. Okay. So yeah. maybe there was some update that we didn't know about. No. Okay. Now they have restless leg wrestling. To celebrate this week, restless leg wrestling. That seems like that person has an advantage because their legs never just at ease. There's like a twitch. Yeah. That you can't anticipate. Man, this guy's twitchy. (laughs) Can't plan for it. It's interesting. Those darn people with their restless leg. It is restless leg syndrome day. Not syndrome, just restless leg awareness day. Wouldn't that be great? You just turn this music on. Donald and Hillary just walk in in their... Sweatsuits. Get in the middle of the ring. Three out of five. Hmm. Anyway, just my idea. Just trying to change the world one competition at a time. We'll be back when we come back. Adam Seth Levine will be joining us, and uh, he'll be talking to us about his book, 
American insecurity, why our economic fear leads to political inaction. Maybe the reason we get nothing done in this country, uh, we're just too afraid economically. Stick with us, folks. Helping you understand what's going on politically in this world. One person at a time. We'll be right back. Levine, I think it's Adam Noah Levine. He, that's the that's a different Adam Levine than the one we're bringing on to talk about economics with us. You know, what are your top fears? Most people will say that public speaking, heights, snakes, would be uh, top of the list for them. However, in the is the American economy one of the scary monsters under your bed? Here today to answer the question is Adam Seth Levine, the author of the book American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. And we're so appreciative. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Do you ever get, um, you know, does anybody ever sit and think that we're going to have a Maroon 5 band member on the show when they have you on the radio? I do get that a lot. Um, I get that a lot in a variety of different domains, especially checking into hotels. Uh, people are often wondering, hmm, we were, you know, maybe it would be that guy. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, no. But I did write a book. I mean, yeah. the, the funny thing is, Adam, you're an expert at what you do. And one of, the, one of the interesting things, arguments that you make in your book is about our fear. Our economic fears uh, lead us to political inaction. Talk about, talk about your thesis there. What do you mean? Sure. Well, let me first just talk about what I mean by the economic fears. Um, and these are things that, you know, in all likelihood, a lot of uh, listeners will um, be able to relate to, um, for better or for worse. Um, so what I refer, when I use that term, what I mean is a set of concerns and anxieties that are increasingly widespread in the American public. Um, and this would include, you know, very much kitchen table issues, uh, concerns about losing your job or concerns about losing your, the hours at your job. Concerns about how you're going to pay for things like health care and um, college or child care. Concerns about whether or not you've saved enough money for retirement. Those kinds of very much like sort of fundamental kitchen table everyday concerns. And so what the book is about is um, given that we've seen um, increasing uh, uh, sets of those concerns expressed in public opinion surveys and a variety of other domains, um, particularly over the last 30 to 40 years, um, why is it that we haven't seen a lot of political action, a lot of uh, mobilization around those issues? Um, like, what's going on there? And what are the barriers to mobilizing people around those concerns? It's an interesting idea because just as you were making that list, I'm thinking that's pretty much everything we're talking about politically. But a lot of these, a lot of these political issues are based in our, in our financial or economic state of mind. And there is there's a lot of fear. It, it doesn't matter if you're a college student that can't pay for school or somebody whose health care costs just went up. Um, it's uh, it, it seems a lot of it is tied to economics. Yeah, and that's one of the really interesting points, and actually one of the sort of very interesting um, tensions, essentially, um, in when we think about sort of politics and we think about political action and engagement and, and things like that. On the one hand, we do hear a lot of rhetoric about a lot of those issues. Um, and certainly during the electoral season, we especially hear a lot of it. Um, 
But and we've been hearing it. We heard it in 2012 and 2008 and going back. Um, but yet, um, and so on the one hand, it can potentially be useful for sort of you know getting people to uh, maybe pay attention to you if you're a candidate, um, and maybe even you know to sort of get people to think that okay, they might support you at the ballot box. But a lot of what I'm concerned about in the book is how do you um, it create sustained engagement, um, and how do you create essentially or, or and slash what are the barriers to activism on a lot of those concerns? Does it, so? Does, does it not? It seems like it would be a motivator for me to to deal with my financial issues. But your argument is that it's it actually leads to inactivity, inaction. You mean do you mean inaction in policy creation or because? Like you were saying, there's a ton of rhetoric from our politicians. Does it just never translate to results? Yeah, so the biggest concern is about whether or not it spurs people to the kind of activism that we know sort of is what provides the kind of pressure to get the political system to be responsive. Um, And so what I'm thinking about, for example, is people's willingness to spend scarce resources of money, time, and attention on communicating their concerns to, say, interest group leaders and to elected officials um, and pressuring them to actually do something about it. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's a very different uh, um, situation than sort of, you know, elected um, people running for office saying, oh, you know, I know that you're concerned out there and please vote for me. Because voting is extremely important, but also it's, you know, something we only do every, say, you know, two to four years for a lot of people, four years, honestly, for a lot of people. Um, And people vote for a whole variety of reasons and for candidates that take a whole suite of positions. Um, And so what I'm thinking about is sort of more focused uh, activism and activism that can have potential, a variety of different um, policy preferences underlying it, but it's sort of activism um, driven by those concerns that would actually put pressure on the political system, particularly in between elections. Ah. Um, yeah, like, and, and you keep saying the word focused activism. I mean, it seems like we we have a lot of people that could be mad for a, for a while, you know, for a weekend, but not necessarily mad nonstop uh, and create an, an activist movement that lasts months or years. Exactly. I mean, when we think about sort of the kinds of issues that seem to be well represented um, through our political system, again, whether we agree with them or we don't agree with them, but they seem to be pretty well represented. um, Issues like, for example, gun control and gun rights. Um, And so, you know, like, for example, the National Rifle Association is very good about having about uh, creating focused activism uh, among the people who care a lot about um, what it cares a lot about. Um, and that's all, that's all, all the time. That's not just a once every four years thing. That's mm-hmm. all the time. But yet, and, and so that's a lot of why I'm sort of focused on the kind of activism, the kind of policy activism that, you know, can create um, the momentum for change um, in between elections. Um, and as you said, you know, the, the key argument here really is one about um, the rhetoric that gets used to describe these issues. Because fundamentally, what I argue in the book is that Rhetoric about people's financial constraints um, inherently, not surprisingly, reminds people about those financial mm-hmm. constraints. And when you remind people about financial constraints, when you essentially at some level tell people that they're poor, they don't then want to spend money and in many cases time on political activism. <laughs> so true. Don't. Well, they got to um, get back to work. Exactly. When was the last time you arrived at a shopping mall and the posters on the wall told, reminded you about your debt? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, make sure you pay off all your debt. Oh, I better leave this mall. I got to right, get back to work. 
It's such a it's such an interesting point. Now, Adam, is nobody been talking about this? Is this is this because uh, it seems pretty innovative to think that one of the reasons we don't address our own economic issues is because it's kind of self reinforcing. We got to get back to work. Is this new theory? So that aspect of the theory is quite new. Um, And what makes it particularly new is because at some level we've known for a long time through a lot of amazing scholarship um, that there are a lot of barriers to mobilizing people who are um, around issues and concerns who are not currently mobilized. Another another way of putting that is to say there are a lot of barriers to sort of moving from making uh, from personal grievances to um, coordinated political action and policy change. Um, Hmm. And so we've known that there are a lot of those kinds of barriers, but Many of those barriers are things that arguably, um, you know, haven't necessarily been the case in recent years. And so a lot of the people, for example, facing um, the economic concerns that I've mentioned um, are, objectively speaking, not necessarily that poorly off. So we're not necessarily talking about people, let's say, who are you know, below the poverty line or living near the poverty line. And so who face extremely real and important objective constraints um, that sort of don't, they don't go anywhere, regardless of the rhetoric. Um, but yet, um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, many people who would, you know, identify solidly middle class who are experiencing those concerns. And we've had, in addition, many organizations that have tried to mobilize people, even around moments of great political opportunity, arguably. Um, and yet they've run into um, roadblocks and they've run into um, troubles. And so in the book, I talk about a number of examples from really throughout the 20th century, but even then some more recent ones, like, for example, the, um, the fight over um, health care reform in 2009 and 2010, where these kinds of rhetorically oriented barriers played a role. Is Because it seems like, like you're the example of the guns, you can have a 24-7 pretty constant mobilization of people, it seems like, on guns or on abortion. Or um, maybe even on the environment, but again, none of these are directly kind of economic issues. Are you saying that on an economic mobilization effort, it's just harder to keep a stir there and and people excited about it as opposed to some of these other issues? It's harder to exactly right, but I think um, that all of those issues face um, a, a lot of you know can potentially face a lot of difficulty in generating mobilization. And clearly we have some, you know, uh, some organizations that have been incredibly successful at mobilizing people who really, you know, share their issue concerns. Hmm. And so the argument is when you then go into the space of, uh, related to economic financial concerns that people are personally facing, that all of a sudden, you know, just simply like, you know, being concerned about the issue actually isn't enough. And in fact, that, that concern can actually be demobilizing. Hmm. And so if what you want to do is you want to, let's say, create a movement among people who are concerned about the issues but aren't personally facing them, maybe because family members are facing other family members or friends or, you know, or they're just, you know, generally concerned about the issue, that can be a bit easier. But one potential problem with that is that the kinds of people who are personally facing those kinds of economic concerns I mentioned earlier, and those who might care a lot about them, but maybe aren't personally facing them, they don't necessarily always want the same thing. They don't always always want the same policy responses. Hmm. And so they, you know, thinking about them or relying on them as surrogates is potentially um, not exactly what we want. So so has American... um you know, mobilization and, 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 and animation about an excitement about um, political issues. Is it waning? Is it fading? Because of what say, you're saying? I wouldn't 
necessarily say that it's waning because one of the interesting things that comes out of the book is that, you know, when, when uh, elected officials or politicians or interest group leaders employ this kind of rhetoric, um, it gets people um, to pay attention sometimes. Um, and it gets people to sort of say, yes, I'm really concerned about that. Yes, I'm, I'm, it's great that you're, you know, trying to deal with this. And it's great that, you know, um, you know, the political system, you know, should be responsive to these concerns and things like that. And so on surveys, you can observe lots of people sort of, you know, say things like, you know, yes, we really need to be doing something about this. Um, it's then, you know, uh, translating that into, you know, spending those scarce resources of money and in many cases time, you know, that's where all of a sudden hmm. things become uh, uh, a lot more challenging. Yeah, um, so we can, we can use the money issues to – to, to get people worried about it, concerned about it, but we can't necessarily get them mobilized to, to get together and fix it. And that's exactly the, like, that, that's the key tension. Yeah. Exactly. Let's take a break. More with Adam Seth Levine when we come, out, come back uh, about his book, American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, on the line with us is Dr. Adam Seth Levine, not from Maroon 5. That's Adam Noah Levine. And he's the author of the book, American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Action. He also is an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University, um, is here today to teach us about our fears. And our fears economically might impact our ability to be mobilized, to get out and fix our own political problems. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So when you, um, when you look at this, what effects are you seeing today, real time, with, with your theory that our economic fears are actually impeding us from mobilizing and fixing problems? Where do you see that happening in today's uh, political world? I would say that I see it in a number of different ways. And so, you know, um, a number of the things I talk about in the book is sort of, you know, given the kinds of barriers that I'm talking about to mobilization, you know, what, what do you do instead? And sort of, you know, how do you kind of, um, and, and if you're trying to mobilize people around these sorts of issues, you know, what, um, uh, what might you do instead? And so, um, you know, there's, you know, one thing that people do is they try to mobilize the people that are, they know are facing various kinds of financial constraints and, and financial concerns, um, but yet they do it with very different issues. Um, and so I think, you know, that's exactly what we're seeing with um, Donald Trump this election cycle, um, where, you know, most of his rhetoric, some of his rhetoric is about economic issues, uh, about trade, for example. But a lot of it really isn't about that. Um, it's about other, you know, it's about um, other ways of sort of tapping into economic concerns, but doing so using very different kinds of issues, like, for example, immigration. Huh. Um, and that's, I think, you know, one possibility. Um, you know, of course, that that raises questions about, you know, if he were to win, to what extent would the economic issues, let's say, take top priority versus, say, immigration or other kinds of issues? Um, and because, after all, the issues that you focus on in your rhetoric are the ones that are likely to potentially, you know, have an impact down the line, uh, have to take priority down the line. 
Um, another thing that I, I think that we're seeing a lot of this election cycle then, so that's on, on the right, on the left, um, is you know, a lot of concerns raised, particularly after Bernie Sanders um, dropped out of the Democratic race, um, is you know, how is he going to keep the revolution going? How is he going to sustain that kind of motivation? And concerns that people expressed um, about whether or not that would be really difficult to do. And I think, you know, the kinds of, um, and you heard, you know, you know, people say things like, oh, you know, it's very difficult to do that. Oh, you know, people get busy. People, you know, don't necessarily have the sort of, you know, money to spend on that kind of activism or the time to spend on it and things like that. Um, and I think that that sort of, you know, very much reflects the kind of realities that I'm talking about in the book, is that sustaining that kind of activism um, over a longer period of time is really, really difficult. Mm. No, you can totally tell that. And it's almost like when Bernie Sanders was pushing, you know, the anti-Wall Street position over and over and over, and then Hillary Clinton started to say the exact same thing. And then once the primaries were over, it was not mentioned as much. And you kind of sense, okay, so maybe we won't go there anymore. And I think the other thing that that was really interesting is, you know, when when Bernie Sanders started having a lot of really big fundraising success, particularly relative to sort of expectations, Mm. which I think were, from a lot of people's perspective, were quite low. Um, But, you know, when when people really started, like, looking at his fundraising numbers and said, wow, you know, he's really, you know, doing, you know, going well beyond expectations and doing doing quite well – you know, I took a look at a lot of his, you know, fundraising appeals, you know, as much as I could, could observe. I wasn't able to, I, you know, don't have any connections with the campaign, wasn't able to, you know, get any inside information. But, you know, one of the things that I sort of observed in a lot of the ones that I saw were um, appeals not to people's financial constraints um, as much, um, or at least that was not sort of what was bolded at the top, you know, in, in, in big letters. But rather, that was that kind of rhetoric, that the focus of those appeals was on how he wasn't getting his money from anywhere else. In other words, he wasn't getting, you know, the corporate donations, the high, you know, the millionaire right. donations, those, those kinds of things. Um, and so and that's a very different messaging strategy. And to me, that sort of reflects the fact that if you what you're trying to do is get people who, you know, may who have these kinds of economic concerns, who you want to vote for you, but also if you're trying to get them to donate money to your campaign, um, you don't necessarily want to remind them of those. That's so true. You know, I saw it a lot recently, too, just in some of the protests um, in Charlotte, uh, the ones we saw in Ferguson and Baltimore. It's always interesting to me that the protests begin at night, um, apparently, when everyone are they're all off of work, so they can all, I guess, get home early, get showered, get down to the protest, and then they end early enough that they can all get home and get a good night's sleep before they have to get up and go to work again. It's it's almost like we're protesting, we're mad about something, but it's also got to fit into our work schedule. And I sit and I thought when I was thinking about you coming on the show, I was thinking, man, it's. It's a movement, but it's a movement that's very much hindered by the fact that we have a nine to five job and we still got to get our kids to soccer. Well, I think that sort of, you know, that really sort of speaks to, you know, a broader question that I said, you know, very fundamental in, 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 uh, for observers of politics and the study of political science and, and whatnot about, you know, how it is that sort of, you know, personal grievances are going to sort of um, translate into politics and political activism because, you know, um, we, we have these personal constraints. We have these lives to lead. It's mm-hmm. something I, I tell this to my students all the time, that I mean, as much as, you know, they sort of sitting in the classroom because they happen to be taking a government class with me, 
um, you know, are probably extremely sort of, you know, politically knowledgeable and interested, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of um, other adults, you know, they have a, so many sort of time commitments associated with work and family and hobbies and things like that, that, you know, politics is not necessarily at the top of the list. Right. Um, and so, you know, when the rhetoric, rem, you know, Go, remind people of that, um, I think that that really sort of potentially can be quite um, demobilizing. How do we overcome that? How do we, um, how do we manage our, our, I guess, our, our economic fears and concerns and at the same time politic, uh, active, actively participate in the political process? Yeah, so that's something else I, I uh, start to grapple with in the book, but I think there's a lot more research to be done and some of which I'm doing right now, in fact. Um, which is to think about sort of, you know, um, uh, the conditions under which you can still sort of mobilize people. So among the people who um, are going to be demobilized because of this rhetoric, um, because they've, they've received these kinds of reminders, I think what you then need to do is think about other ways to mobilize them to tap into other kinds of motivations. Because at the core of what I'm talking about is the idea that just being concerned about these issues, about these economic issues, that's not going to be mobilizing. Right. So the rhetoric that refers to that, that's not going to be mobilizing. But if instead you can try to tap into, let's say, social networks or other kinds of social concerns, let's say, you know, because a friend or a neighbor is, you know, strongly encouraging you to do something with him or her, um, that can potentially um, overcome the initial desire that we might be to say, oh, I really don't have time for this. I don't have money for this. Hmm. And I think that's something that many people can probably relate to in their everyday lives that, you know, we there are lots of things we feel like we don't have time or money um, or just, you know, this sort of spare, you know, cognitive capacity to sort of deal with right now. But, you know, if somebody we really care about comes to us and says, you know, I'm concerned about this. I was wondering if you could help me out or help a friend of mine out. Um, that, that starts to change the calculus a little bit. But what's interesting is that, you know, to know is, you know, once we start talking about that, it's not per se the concern about the issue that's mobilizing people or, and that's motivating them. It's actually that social connection. It's yeah, it's it's the community. It seems like it seems like what Bernie Sanders was able to do. Uh, is it the leader that you need? I mean, do you need to just garner enough money and support to get the right leader who can, in a full-time way, almost, and I don't know if he was great at it, like a Ralph Nader, um, but a Bernie Sanders who really was taking on the issues of a lot of these millennials and and had, uh, and really seemed to have some some seriously interesting power. Do you need to just have the leader? Does the leader help create that community and, 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 you know, eliminate some of the fear. I think the, the leader certainly um, can, can definitely play a role in that. Um, I would also argue that, you know, there have been many times where arguably we've had, uh, you know, potentially amazing, you know, leaders and leaders who, you know, may or may not be household names, but are interest group leaders or, you know, mm-hmm. people like that who, um, you know, um, have had many successes on many different issues um, in the realm of mobilizing people, but maybe less so um, when it comes to economic and security issues. And, um, and I have a number of those examples actually right in the introduction of the book to kind of set the stage. Um, the other thing I would sort of uh, point out, to, uh, point out to, to listeners is that um, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, nowadays there's a way in which we talk about sort of politics as sort of this like, you know, Sort of separate realm, um, even though it impacts our lives in so many different ways all the time. That, but you know, being active in politics is kind of this like other thing, this other thing you might sort of add to the list. Mm. Whereas, 
at you know other moments in American history and some moments that weren't necessarily all that long ago, um, being sort of politically engaged and active was very much woven into other identities that people um, you know held very closely to them. And like they might have been just you know being members of various kinds of volunteer organizations, for example, that happened to also sort of talk about politics uh, as it came up. Yeah. And and so I think like trying to, you know, thinking about ways to sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, bring sort of like social identities and um, and and then, you know, and, and political identities together, um, you know, uh, um, and particularly around, let's say, you know, community organizations and things like that is certainly a promising avenue. It, it is. And making I guess making some of these uh, movements part a real part of our lives, not just something we do every four years when there's a really good presidential moment. No, I think that's exactly right, and that's actually something that, on the one hand, you know, getting people to turn out to vote uh, uh, in November is incredibly important, um, and 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 everybody believes that that voter turnout is important. Um, but I think when all we do is we, you know, we take this opportunity every four years, every fall, to sort of get people so focused on turning out to vote and what's going to happen on Election Day in, the, in November, which, again, is incredibly important. But yet none of that rhetoric talks about how it is you might um, get people to sustain attention and why it's important to sustain attention the day after Election Day. Mm. No, true. Totally true. Well, uh, we appreciate your insight, Adam. This is, I think, some great work. And... I think it's motivating me. I know just to start thinking and questioning myself. So is it more about the rhetoric or is it more about the results? We've got to figure out a way to mobilize to get results on these issues or we'll just keep dancing the rhetoric for the next 20 years, which we can't do on the economy. We can't do it on health care. We can't do it on taxes. Think about it. If you're a small business owner, you, you know it's hard to keep this thing going. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. It is about rhetoric. We hear about the rhetoric all the time. You see it with the police shootings, you know, the the, net, the latest greatest shooting. Everyone gets upset. Riots in the streets. Uh, Even before we know yeah, the facts of right. the shooting, we're, we're just reacting to things. Tulsa's moving down the road. They're, they've already charged their police officer. She turned herself in yeah. overnight. Um, and we had a press conference yesterday, seemingly more rhetoric. There's a video. No one's going to see the video. The family saw the video. It's still confusing. It's inconclusive. Hmm. Did he have a book? Was it a gun? We're not sure. But uh, the politicians are great at the rhetoric side that uh, Dr. Levine was talking about. Not necessarily great at the creating results side, which is why you got to mobilize. you got to get people that are involved. Let's go through a few quotes. Um, here's Hillary Clinton. She's just flat out upset no, she's talking to she's on a video conference call to a labor union type conference somewhere in las vegas i believe she's in on the other side of the country video conference call she's talking about donald trump right to work states some labor issues that are out there and then she does this now having said all this why aren't i 50 points ahead you might ask well The choice for working families has never been clearer. I need your help to get Donald Trump's record out to everybody. Nobody should be fooled. 
<coughs> oh, there we go. Excuse me. Hmm. <coughs> now, she was. You she, watch her. She she's, was mad. She's kind of angry. I need your help. When, when she hits that, why, why aren't I 50 points ahead? She's, you start seeing more than just, you know, uh, like she's trying to play up emotion. There's actual, like, she's not happy. She's angry at this, yeah. this point. And, and so she starts yelling. And so, I mean, I, I was looking at uh, – I went and I, just to test it out. I mean, you look at conservative sites. They would have had this clip and pointed that out. Liberal sites were like, why is she yelling? Were they really? They're usually going far and beyond yeah. to support her. Right. But they're asking, like, why is she yelling in this? Because she was – it wasn't – you know, there was – we've had several people on talking about, is Hillary Clinton – is her voice – is she yelling? Right. Or is she doing the same thing the men do? They're just not used to it because it's a woman's voice. And, and in this case, they're like, why is she yelling? And she, she asked, why am I not up 50 points? Which is the question everybody's been asking. Like, why aren't you up At, at least she's points. asking the same question yeah. everyone else is. But she uh, didn't answer the question. No, no. again – but well, she just said, "You guys, because you guys basically, you got to get the word out." Yeah, he's an ec- he's you, you got to you got to push him on his issues on his real uh, record. Dalai Lama, wonderful um, human being, uh, very intuitive man. He, people want to know what he thinks. So the BBC interviews him and asks him this: Of Donald, have you Trump. met Donald Trump? Never. What do you think of him? I don't know. Sometimes you see his sort of the the way his hair. Or something like that. Uh, add his mouth, small. <laughs> That's my impression. That's but, a good impression. Uh, but, but but I don't know. If Donald Trump was to become president, would you be happy to go and see him at the White House? That depends, you see, on him. If he invite me, then I will go. So he goes. His hair and his mouth is really small. <laughs> say that. That's what he said. <laughs> he has weird hair and his mouth is really small. That's really of yeah. what he thinks of Donald Trump. Nailed it. <laughs> he nailed it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Donald Trump's even been talking about um, the protesters in Charlotte. Uh, he's kind of taking a different, a different approach. If you're not aware, drugs are a very, very big factor in what you're watching on television at night. My administration will work with local communities and local officials to make the reduction of crime a top priority. Safety is the foundation of the ladder to American success. A great education and a really good paying job. So drugs. Did he drug did his campaign drug test the protesters? Is that how he knows well, this? Well, and I, don't I think know. maybe it's the drugs the police are, are taking drugs and then shooting people? Is that what he's trying to say? Well, that didn't happen in Charlotte. Well, no, not but, the protests. But yeah. he, he's blaming it on drugs. Now, interesting yeah. point, though, that we've had made on the show many times. Some of the he's, – he's right because the black community has been disproportionately uh, affected, charged, and jailed for drug crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is part of why they're upset Absolutely. with police officers who keep arresting them where whites historically may not have been arrested for the same crimes. Yeah. So he's right about the drugs. Yeah, yeah. I just think he's blaming case. the wrong people. He, he thinks those people are in the streets because but, they're currently yeah. on drugs. Yeah, and they're that's all on not the, But he'll fix it. He'll fix at it. At some point. Anyway, back to – that's just rhetoric. Huh. Anyway, we'll take a break. Next hour, stick with us. More fun and insight. We'll be back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Happy September 23rd, Restless Leg Awareness Day. Mm-hmm. Get control of that restless leg. A lot of people have been learning about uh, symptoms of restless leg syndrome. It may be associated with dopamine, blood iron levels, characterized by urges to move the legs when at rest. Sometimes it can also occur in the arms, have restless arm syndrome, and just overall general restlessness. I don't think if I played this song while I had Restless Leg, I don't think it would be a problem at all. I think it would be a really cool moment to start dancing. This is the soundtrack to your legs, by the way. This is what they're listening to when they're up all night. I don't ever hear this song when my legs are moving. But if I did, I think I'd be a lot happier man. It's also, um, it's, it's Hug a Vegetarian Day. If you eat every single fig, I will never call you a pig. I respect you and pigs. Don't use pig as an insult. Animals are innocent. Don't be speciesist. Never use the name of an animal as an insult for a human. Animals are innocent. Animals are innocent. That's that's the uh, vegan rap. It's a little bit more than a vegetarian. Vegans are extreme vegetarians. Yeah. I respect you but don't chicken. use the name of an animal as an insult. Don't call someone a pig. I respect you and sheep. Words to live by. It's great. I respect you and sheep. Little things we try to remind you of. A lot of a lot of radio shows wouldn't go to that no. extreme. But we we want to remind you of everything. Don't use animals as insults. And I respect you and sheep. And sheep. <laughs> That's good radio right there. We'll get to all of that. Plus, today we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Um, Tim Timothy Naimi, who is a researcher about alcohol and advertising and addiction. And does the increase of advertising to your child, uh, uh, especially alcohol-related advertising, does it actually increase the likelihood they're going to consume? We'll be talking about his research there, um, as well as just giving you the overall information about about alcohol and um, your kids. You won't believe it. The numbers are dropping of underage use of alcohol. But there's some crazy uh, information about the research on advertising to children and what how it impacts them. So we'll get to all of that, plus crazy new game show out of uh, Great Britain – um, that involves a nail gun. Oh, sounds interesting. Yeah, it's called Nailed It. Yeah. We'll get to all that fun stuff. But first, to Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie? Authorities in Charlotte imposed a citywide curfew overnight as protests continue into the third night after a protester shot Wednesday died of his injuries. Police said 26-year-old Justin Carr died Thursday after being in critical condition. He was shot while protesters clashed clashed with riot police around 8.30 p.m. on Wednesday, though police have stressed that he was not shot by the police. 
Hillary Clinton leads in just one of the four swing states polled by Quinnipiac University and the latest batch of polls released Thursday by the Connecticut-based polling center. Clinton edges out Donald Trump in a head-to-head matchup in Virginia, leading 50% to 43%. But in Colorado, Clinton and Trump are tied, each with 47%, both in Georgia and Iowa, and Trump is ahead with 50% support to Clinton's 44%. Hackers on Thursday posted hundreds of emails from a young Democratic operative that contained documents detailing the minute-by-minute schedules and precise movements of the vice president, the first lady, and Hillary Clinton during recent campaign fundraisers and official political events. The emails included names and cell phone numbers of numerous Secret Service agents, spreadsheets with the names and social security numbers of campaign donors. And finally... Yes? The owner of a gift shop in California is seeking a burglar known as the Hello Kitty Bandit. Meow. Yep. Who has repeatedly broken into his store. DJ Jones of Aloha Floral and Gifts shared surveillance footage to Facebook showing the bandit breaking a window in order to steal a pair of Hello Kitty puzzles. (laughs) Wow. These bandits. I just, I don't know. Come on. Uh, He wrote, my store was yet broken into again. Just thought I would share the video in case anybody recognizes this guy. Same guy every time. That guy loves Hello Kitty. Now, why why would you want to steal Hello Kitty puzzles? That's my question. No, the the why wouldn't you? Ooh, that's, that's a why. bad kitty. You know, I guess a lot of people do like Hello Kitty. So in do, some places, maybe he sells them in China because I think they're worth it, more yeah. in China. Yeah, I bet that's it. He he buys them low in the United States. He steals them low in the United States and then he sells them high in yeah. China. That makes sense. Yeah, that's good business right there. Wow, Sadie, thanks. Thanks for the update. Boy, the White House, they're, they're, come on. You got to keep your secret secret. Everybody now knows your whole schedule. That's crazy. 500 million, by the way, from Yahoo. From Yahoo. Yahoo. And they're saying that even though this happened in 2014, you probably need – if you have a Yahoo account, you probably need to go change your passwords. That also might be why your bank account keeps going down by $30 a week. Just look into it. 500 million names. More than the population of the U.S. and Mexico combined. Man. But if you had a wall, at least we'd know who belongs where. There you go. There you go. Just a little point for you. Um, Out of uh, an interesting story, when you think about it, uh, nail guns, if you've ever in your life seen a nail gun, dangerous. These things are crazy. It's usual for people to shoplift things, you know, shoving them down their pants. But it's important that one is careful about what, you know, what they're putting down there. A guy went into Home Depot in East Charlotte. A customer reported seeing the guy get gutsy with some stolen goods. The customer told employees that she saw a man put a nail gun down the front of his pants. Hmm. And then he walked out of the, ow, ow. Then he walked out of the store. And uh, police sought the gun-toting suspect who robbed the Daytona pizza delivery man. Well, actually, we'll get to the pizza story. This guy shoved a, a nail gun. Down his pants. And I just – we just had our neighbor doing something on his house using a nail gun. And you can shoot a nail about every second. But don't you need to have it hooked up to an air compressor? Well, I guess. Or are they the, is it the type that doesn't need that? No, it's probably – his was probably good. Okay. Except – Like it's not going to go off. No. 
But you know how in Great Britain, they it seems like the British TV, BBC, all of those, they tend to create some really good shows. Right. And then in America, we copy a lot of their shows. Well, we wait and see if it's a success. Then right. we copy, yeah. But I think the Brits copied us because really? they heard about Nail Guy putting the nail gun down his pants. Right. And they, they started a great uh, new show apparently um, on the British Game Show Network, uh, BGC they call it. And – um, it's a great show that they call – I think it's – what's it called, Jeffrey? Nailed it. Ah. Tired of the same old boring game shows? Is that your final answer? $350,000. No deal. Open the case. Then you're sure to love Nailed It. <laughs> the new BGC game show that makes contestants complete random challenges yeah. with a nail gun in their trousers. <laughs> like kicking a field goal. Nailed it! Or dancing to YMCA dressed up as the sailor from the village beach. Nailed it! Or knitting a cap. Nailed it! Viewers love it. I suffer from depression, so this show is kind of like the highlight of my day. And the contestants seem to have a good time, too. Uh, At first, I wasn't a fan of all the nails, but after the 50th or 60th nail, you... Can't feel it as much. Witness this novice gymnast do a whip, followed by a double back into a round-off handspring, and finishing up with a layout back. Nailed it! Nailed it! Coming this spring to BGC. I'd watch. That's good TV. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we have any of those shows here? But, well, they take the risks yeah. in Britain, and then we just steal the show later. If it doesn't work, maybe it didn't quite have the the feel that they wanted. Nailed it. Yeah. Maybe it was just too much nails. So I guess you put the nail gun in your pants and then they make you do activities. They made a gymnast like do an entire floor routine. You're like shot in the foot. Censorship isn't as extreme over there so they can get away with more. Mm. I think it's going to be great. Definite hit. Definite hit. Nailed it. Hey, uh, did you hear about Putin? What did Putin do? Vladimir Putin is facing trespassing charges. Not the Vladimir Putin. Oh. Not the president of Russia. But Vladimir Putin of West Palm Beach. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh. Okay. According to a police report, police responded to a supermarket following a report of a man screaming at employees. Uh, managers tried to get Putin to leave, but he refused. He told the West Palm Beach police officers that he missed his ride. Hmm. You want to hear the audio of that? We have audio. We got it. Yeah. Cool. Get away, Wow. First person video now, there. That was in Russian. This guy's uh, from West Palm Beach. Do we have a translator for that? Do you you know Russian? Yeah. All he said was, I missed my ride. <laughs> All of that translates to I missed my ride. Wow. Complicated really? language. Yeah, they're not very efficient with no. their words. Well, he seemed like he was saying a lot more, but no, just missed his ride. Apparently, the guy that is Vladimir Putin in West Palm Beach is a Russian. Oh, okay. 
Didn't know that. Not the Russian Vlad. The other one. Is this the official Vladimir Putin music? Yeah. Putin on the Ritz? (laughs) That's good. I wonder if Putin, he had to try the game, nailed it. I'm going to guess he might have. I'm going to guess he knows his way around a nail gun. They're used. Yeah. I don't want to cast aspersions, but right. he, that guy knows a nail gun. <laughs> Fun. You know, now that uh, Bill Cosby is no longer the spokesperson for Jell-O Putin, yeah. maybe it should be Vladimir Putin. Putin, Putin pops. You think? But he's got to do the Bill Cosby impression yeah. in the commercials. <laughs> have have Vlad with a really colorful... Yellow pudding pops. With a big flowery sweater on. You know how Mr. Cosby used to always wear the nice sweaters. Any other headlines we should be paying attention to, Terry? So a guy owns a, a Tesla... The sports car. Yeah, I'm buying a Tesla. They so. have the uh, the electric car maker has a guy has it has the insane mode where you punch mm-hmm. the button and go zero to sixty in three point one to three point mm. three seconds. Yeah. Well, a guy is suing Tesla for a guy from Norway suing Tesla because he says the insane mode of acceleration is well not it's too sane. It's not insane enough for him. What? The lawsuit filed by 126 owners of the uh, specific version of the Model S. Tesla sedan says it falls short of the claim that it can go from 0 to 60 in 3.1 to 3.3 seconds. The Model S is is too low of horsepower, says the lawyer, and of course it affects the car's performance. According to consumers, he says the car hits 469 horsepower instead of the promised 700 horsepower. Hmm. But Tesla rep denies the close claim, saying the company tests indicate that the Model S meets performance standards. The suit is seeking unspecified reimbursements. In June, Norway's Consumer Deputies Commission ruled that five owners of the Model S should be reimbursed $600 apiece for slow acceleration. I think they ought to check the brake. A lot of times when I don't accelerate as fast as I thought I should, I have the emergency brake on. We just want you to call them and let them know that. Possibly. Just check that. So apparently insane mode is not insane enough. enough. Which is crazy because my father-in-law got whiplash doing insane mode. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't know that you need to – Brace you yourself. Know, yeah, you need to pack your head back. and it's kind of abrupt. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, I'll test it. Hey, I would, I would try a semi-insane mode. I'll be, I'm good with that. You can simulate that in your car. Just yeah. step on the gas. I, right now, I'm looking for a new car, and I'm trying to decide, do I want efficiency, fuel efficiency, Ooh, yeah. or do I want insanity? Just sheer horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. And I, right now, I want insanity because mm. I'm getting old. Midlife crisis. Yep. I need something, and I want it red and a two-seater. There you go. No kids. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> a kidless car. Interesting stuff, folks. Um, We will take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Tim Naimi about alcohol advertising and your children. Does it really make a difference if your kids see ads um, promoting drinking? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the world today, it's hard, if not impossible, to avoid advertising. Everything from the latest and greatest technology to the newest trend in fashion gets thrown into the face of society daily. Advertisements for alcohol companies are no different, and those ads have uh, are having quite an impact, especially among youth and teenagers. Dr. Timothy Naimi is an associate professor with the Boston University Schools of Medicine and Public Health and researches the effects of advertising on underage drinking. He joins us here today with some uh, some added insight into some of his research. Dr. Naimi, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. You call, please call me Tim. You bet, Tim. This is this is uh, this is huge. I have six kids, and in fact, when I was uh, reading your article, I, I was thinking the entire time um, about my children and the impact of this. Talk to us about the impact of advertising on our kids. It's 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 greater than we think. Well, you know, Matt. In general, we know that that advertising works, right? So, right. That that I mean. But you know how sometimes we, we are when we come to these things, we have to do research to prove what, what we already know, <laughs> if you know what I mean? Because, because for, even though advertising is, is very, very you know, effective and um, alcohol companies spend many billions of dollars a year on alcohol advertising, um, for a long time there's been this idea that, oh, no, no, I mean, al- alcohol advertising really shouldn't be regulated because it really doesn't doesn't uh, influence whether or not, you know, kids drink or, or how much they drink. And so I think over the past, you know, decade in particular, we've learned a lot more um, about, about that. And I think um, uh, members of our research team, as well as other research teams, have done a really good job showing that, that advertising definitely influences which brands kids drink. Now, of course, a lot of times when kids drink, they drink whatever is available to them. But mm-hmm. actually, they have a surprising amount of discretion. They often will purchase it from buyers who are of age. So, they, so, but, so on average, when you look at how much advertising for a particular brand a kid is exposed to, that pretty, pretty strongly correlates which, with which brands they tend to drink. So, so it's, it's about brands. Um, but I guess one of the things that we ought to make sure we get out there, drinking yeah. for kids overall is going down. Is that right? Drinking for kids overall has gone down somewhat over the past decade. Correct. Okay. But correct. you are but finding... Still, it, oh, go ahead. It's still, it's still the, the most common um, uh, drug used by kids, still way more than uh, marijuana. And um, it still uh, kills... Uh, over 5,000 kids each year, and alcohol is still the leading risk factor for the three leading causes of death among adolescents, those being car crashes, suicides, and homicides. Alcohol is a strong risk factor for all of those. So I think the the main message actually is that youth drinking remains common. It has declined uh, somewhat over the past uh, 10 or 15 years, but but, um, I wouldn't say it's dramatic. Right. And also, I guess, that the the advertising to our children, it does work, and it does work uh, specifically on which brands they're most likely to choose if they can choose. Exactly. I mean, so I think one thing that people be interested in is, um, you know, advertising is very much a brand-specific phenomenon. So when it comes to alcohol, you know, companies aren't advertising for, you know, drink alcohol. They're not even advertising drink beer. They're advertising drink Bud Light. 
mm-hmm. or drink Dos Equis and you'll be like a really cool guy who has lots of women hanging off of him. Or mm-hmm. they'll So it's very much of a brand level phenomenon. And one of the things that's important to do in your research is when you look at the advertising is try to link advertising for specific brands to consumption of specific brands. Now, what our recent study that's, um, that, that came out and that's gotten a lot of press attention is that we went you know, we went a step further. So we were still looking at the amount of, adverti- of advertising for specific brands. But what we did is we added up all that advertising for all those specific brands. And then we related that to how much aggregated consumption of all those specific brands were there. So in other words, what we're trying to get at is not simply whether or not the advertising affects which brands kids drink, but whether it affects how much kids drink. Because at the end of the day, that's you know arguably what we most care about. Mm-hmm. A, whether they start to drink, this study was not about that, or how much they drink in total. And what, in fact, we yeah, what did you find out? In, we found that, in fact, that there was a very strong relationship that, for example, kids who, this is a study of um, the 20 most popular non-sports television shows, um, and and, and there's 61 um, alcohol brands advertised on those shows, accounting for about half of all consumption. And basically, kids who were exposed to no advertising for any of those 61 brands on average drank about 14 drinks per month, whereas kids who were exposed to sort of an average amount of advertising drank like 33 drinks a month. So, for, you know, it, um, so there's a, hmm. sort of a strong relationship there, but that's just some sort of sample numbers to give you an idea of of the differences. Interesting. Now, another thing, Matt, that's important to do is you can say, well, and this is very true, actually, you can say, well, kids who watch more advertising might be also likely to, to do other things that are related to drinking more. You know, they may be more risk takers. They uh-huh. may be less, you know, maybe spending less time on studying and more time, you know, watching TV and playing video games or whatever. And so we, we are very careful to try to, to account for that. And the other thing is, you know, because we didn't study every single brand, what we also did was statistically account for how much of the other brands that they consumed, the non-advertised brands. And that was really important because that enables you to to sort of address any differences that there might be with respect to alcohol consumption, their tendency to drink alcohol in general, mm-hmm. to try to distill out, if we will, <laughs> the effect of the advertising. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it's a it's a fascinating study. So you found overall those that were advertised to were having the kids were having an average of thirty three drinks a month. Those that weren't advertised, yeah, who, who, who experienced about an average amount of advertising. Okay, average I would say amount. That you had, if again for people who saw zero or, or, or very little advertising, they drank on average about fourteen drinks a month. Now. This is a national sample, so I know in some places like Utah yeah. it would be less, and it's also a sample of underage drinkers. You know, about half or a little less of kids in high school are drink alcohol on a on at least on a monthly basis. Hmm. Um, so, so if you if you sort of cut it up for each, you know, sort of ten or twenty percent difference in advertising, it corresponded to about six more drinks per month, and then at even higher levels. Though that amount of increase in advertising resulted in even larger jumps up in how many drinks they they had per month. Hmm. So, so anyways, if you, I mean, it's hard to um, 
sort of give give a specific example, but but if you if you were to divide for each 10 or 20 percent increase in advertising, it's about you know sort of six to ten drinks more consumed each month. And it it just an interesting fact you brought up there that I, I was always assuming this was you know Miller Lite commercials um, in the middle of a football game, but this is also just people mentioning a brand of vodka in the middle of a show, a television show. Well, no, this is actually advertising. Advertising, okay. This is actually these are actually based on advertising, yeah. not product placements or mentions, okay. or, you know, depictions of that type of thing. Is is so, it, it? What do you ahead, think? Sorry. What 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 surprised you as you went through this, Tim? I mean, you've been at this a long time. You've researched it every way you can research it. What stands out as worrisome to you? Well, I think I think the the issue is that. The, it, over time, what we're finding out is that advertising doesn't just impact what kids are drinking, but it impacts uh, how much they drink. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of prompts us to really look at how do we regulate, how is alcohol advertising regulated in our country or our state? And I don't know um, if many of your listeners are, would be familiar with that, but um, essentially there is no, you know, the, any regulation of alcohol advertising is it's entirely what they call self-regulatory, meaning that the industry basically gets to decide how much regulation there is. Uh-huh. And I often joke that, you know, self-regulation is sort of an oxymoronic term, right? Because, <laughs> you know, the idea of regulation is like, I'm a big guy, I love to eat, right? You know, if, I, if my wife tries to regulate my food... Well, she said, well, I'll just let you self-regulate. Well, clearly that's not really regulation because regulation is occasionally doing stuff you don't want to do. So we really have no system of of control of alcohol advertising. I mean, the industry, alcohol industries representing beer, wine, and distilled spirits have some voluntary guidelines in place, but they're quite liberal. In other words, they pledge, for example, on television – not to put alcohol ads on programs in which underage viewers exceed the number of of age viewers by more than a two to one ratio. So that means there have to be twice as many, you know, underage people watching mm-hmm. for their for their amount in the population. So that that you know prevents them from, or the you know, advertising on very very small numbers of shows. And there's no restrictions, for example, on advertising on television programs that have massive youth audiences, but that where they may not be sort of disproportionately overrepresentative. Things like the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. the NCAA tournament. You know, the point is lots of kids watch that, but also lots of adults watch it. So they can essentially deliver all the gross tonnage of advertising that, that they desire to any population group. Right. Well, and I guess it's like, I mean, it makes sense. You shouldn't be advertising on Disney Channel kind of thing. But my kids love a show like The Office Mm -hmm. and my teenage kids would and do. And so all of a sudden they could be deeply impacted by watching advertising on The Office about drinking. Yeah. Yeah. And so cable TV is, um, yeah, all those kinds of um, shows. Exactly. And again, um, the, the age that your kids are at are sort of the age when 
when kids, you know, most most kids who start to drink start, you know, somewhere between 13 and 15 or 16. Yeah, yeah. So they're not, you know, a lot, a lot of them aren't watching the, the Disney Channel anymore. No. So. <laughs> well, Tim, so let's take a break. We'll come back. Yeah. I want to continue the discussion and uh, learn from you more about your research. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Timothy Naimi. And he is an associate professor with the Boston University Schools of Medicine and Public Health. Underage drinking, folks. And uh, he's giving us more information about alcohol consumption and advertising, the correlation between the two. Stick with us, helping you live longer and, and create healthier relationships and lives with your kids. We'll be back. By what name are you known? There are some who call me Tim. <laughs> Welcome back, friends. Uh, a little shout out right there to our guest, uh, Dr. Timothy Namey. Uh, Tim is a, an associate professor with the Boston University Schools of Medicine and Public Health and researches the effects of advertising on underage drinking. Tim, thank you so much for being with us. You're so welcome. We just did a little Monty Python tribute to you. Thank you. I loved it. You bet. Hey, uh, this, okay, so let me get this straight. You're finding out more and more, and I mean, through your research, we've we've kind of distinguished that advertising works. Uh, children mm-hmm. or kids that are watching advertising are more likely, it's more likely to impact what brand they choose if they get to choose. Sometimes they just got to take what comes. And yeah. when they choose, you're saying every 10% increase in advertising that, that our teens and, and youth see in, mm-hmm. uh, re, re, basically reflects about a six drinks per 10% per month. Per month, per month increase. Increase. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So – right. And the reason we want to be on this and on top of this is because, uh, you know, drinking – teen underage drinking um, also correlates with – the three biggest ways and reasons kids are dying, automobile yeah, accidents, suicide, homicide. Yeah. Okay. So um, when we when we look at this, one of the things I was thinking is, is it these kids that are maybe watching more television, is it because uh, – is did you were you able to figure out, is it because their parents are less involved? It seems like if a parent wasn't there – um, yeah. A child might watch more TV. So these are kids that are – it's not just the TV. It's the involvement of p- parents. Well, that's why I think it's important to account for – like in our study, we also control for how much total TV time kids watch, whether their parents – they report that their parents you know, control what they watch. There are a lot of factors, and that's why we also control for the amount of non-advertised alcohol they drink to try to take care of all these factors. But I think you're getting at a – at a really important point, which is a bit beyond the scope of the study, but in terms of the broader context of things is like, I mean, to me, it sort of begs the question, what, what can we do? We know that there's not, um, that the, the industry is self-regulatory and, and doesn't really um, put tight constraints on what, what it does. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, which is charged for sort of overseeing whether they're complying with their own standards, you know, has trouble sort of keeping up with things. So I guess the point is, is like, what, what kind of things can, can, you know, listeners do, can parents do? And, and I think, um, 
so some of those things your your question sort of gets at, you know, which is like maybe watch less television, spend less time in front of a screen. I mean, mm. I think in general, um, you know, more screen time, more TV watching is correlated with lots of bad things. Now, it's not necessarily all because of the TV itself, right? I mean, but again, the point is that the more engaged kids are with other activities, with sports, with, you know, reading or studying or, you know, building, you know, kites or doing whatever they do, um, you know, they're just more, they're, you know, in some ways you could argue sort of fuller lives and less um, less bandwidth available for uh, <laughs> right. doing doing things that may get them into trouble. And that's not just for drinking, but just sort of lots of lots of areas. So I think that's, um, I think limiting screen time is a great, uh, you know, it's recommended and it's, um, you know, it's a good idea. Do you, do you, it's possible. You know, some kids don't have, you know, it's, it's uh, an issue of supervision and, well, there's a lot of factors that go into Right. It. Do you do you notice a difference in, um, I guess, types of screen use and advertising and its impact? Um, whether they're playing video games, I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of advertising on yeah. video games um, and vice versa. I don't know if there's no, great, Netflix and all these other things. It's beyond my... Um, my sort of scope of of interest, but I'll tell you that one that I think the television. I mean, if you wanted to, so so there's sort of network television, there's cable television, and there's sort of been the big increases in alcohol advertising over the past decade have been on um, cable television, and then there's another big area where there's just been an explosion of alcohol marketing, um, and it's really hard to track uh, and and even more difficult to regulate, which is the, which is the web. So again, because there, there's essentially no, no way you can uh, track people's very hard to restrict on the basis of age, right? Some, right. some alcohol websites you go to, or um, will have a thing where you have to put in your birthday or something, but it's very easy to obviously. So, and, and there's really no regulatory framework around uh, the internet. And then there's lots of social media stuff too, where it may not even be apparent that it's advertising, right? So, I mean, there's all these sort of, uh, again, I'm not an expert in this, but social media marketing thing where where you'll have these interest groups or whatever or pop up where there are you know, people will be mentioning specific brands and it's actually part of, um, it, it may not even be apparent that it's, that it's advertising. So what we know is that there's a lot more alcohol advertising of various types uh, on the Internet and social media. Um, and again, so I think uh, it's not just television; it's also hmm. it's also the internet and other electronic forms of uh, communication and mass communication. In your research, do you sense um, uh, talk about teens and and what you're learning about teenagers, uh, their ability to make decisions um, versus just an adult? Does advertising of alcohol impact teens differently than adults? Well, I think in general the the the, the ideas operate the same way. I mean, the idea is to influence people's... There are a lot of things that advertising does, but it, it sort of influences people's, they call it expectancies. You know, in other words, if you come to associate a particular product with, and that could be alcohol or anything else, with with some desirable outcome, right, then that's, that's something that you want, then that's influencing, so subconsciously or consciously, um, if one comes to associate a brand of alcohol with like hooking up at a party with a cute member of the opposite sex or 
or, you know, being successful, you know, financially or having a good job or, you know, who knows? All those things, that's what it's, that's what it's basically designed to do. So some of the influence is more at the subconscious level, and then there's other sort of um, direct ways to do it. Um, e- even, the, even the means of which advertising happens, if it's using humor or things with sort of emotions that we feel positively about, you know, even though we, you know, alcohol kills about 100,000 Americans each and every year in the United States, if we think of it, beer advertising and think, oh, it's funny, there's like a frog, or there's people, you know, making funny jokes, you know. Um, we, we sort of, it, it makes it difficult for us to properly contextualize the, the, the risks or potential benefits of a product. Right. So I don't know if that's a very good answer no, that's, to your question. No, that's but. good. And Tim, do you, um, so if there's parents out there and they, they really just want to do more, I guess the obvious is decrease the messages, the the screen time and uh, cable time, television time. What else have you yeah. learned in your research that parents can do to 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 be a better you know a, a better well, source think, and guide I mean, I on this? Term, yeah, sure. In terms of you know, the, well, first of all, I put this into the, a broader context, which is that as a country, um, listen, I'm I'm a. Uh, you know, I live in Massachusetts, but that doesn't mean I'm. Uh, I understand people don't like regulation, and I think, but I think for dangerous products or potentially dangerous projects, that that regulation is is justified. And even, you know, libertarian would say that when when it, when a product has a chance to cause harms to to others, that that's an appropriate place for regulation. So I think if you, if you look at the main ways, how do we limit the harms and the misery that that alcohol causes? Um, in our states and countries and communities, what we need is not to make it illegal, but to appropriately regulate it. And most states, if you put, um, you know, sort of limits on advertising are very much like things like other important policies, like how much do we tax alcohol? How many, you know, outlets do we allow to sell alcohol? And at what hours of the day and night do we think that's a good idea? Do we allow bars to have sort of unfettered happy hours or like all you can drink specials for $5. These are kind of how it fits into the broader network of alcohol policies. And I think in general, those are very, very important. Hmm. And then in terms of the, you know, the parents, I think the, the, the limiting screen time is important. But the most important thing that a parent can do in terms of um, how their kids, for example, might drink is, is modeling, um, you know, modeling, if, if they drink, is modeling sort of good drinking behavior. So um, it, it is, you know, it, it, if, if, if parents drink, that again, uh, drinking to get drunk or, or drinking too much has a much more powerful influence on whether their kids are likely to do the same thing compared to whatever they say. So it's sort of uh, do, do as I, do as do. I say, not as I do, doesn't, yeah. doesn't work too well. So I think, I think modeling good behavior around alcohol and sort of um, you know, the proper social context for those right. who drink, I think that's the key. Well, and I mean, the, these kids today, I guess, because of the technology and their um, their access to so much more information, they're smart. These are smart kids, smarter than right. I, I think I ever was at yeah. that age. For sure, for sure. So they, so they see through, they, they see through, um, you know, parents who may be, saying one thing and doing another. Right, so, right. Um, so I think, again, 
sort of modeling good behavior. And for, again, for parents who drink, that sort of alcohol, even if they're not drunk, but it doesn't become sort of the, you know, they see it as sort of the center of their social life, then I think that conveys messages. So I think um, I have nothing against drinking, and I think uh, drinking can be enjoyed and is enjoyed by many people, and many people do so in a sort of a low-risk manner. But I think that, um, unfortunately, a lot of people who drink uh, are not necessarily alcoholic, but they drink in ways that are not healthy and, and not sort of um, things that we want to pass on to our kids. Right, so. right. Dr. Tim Naimi, thank you so much for your insights and your great work there and for really gaining the information we need and disseminating it so we can have healthier lives with our own children. Folks, it's, uh, there's, there's also ways, there's other ways to deal with the difficulties of life. And I'm not sure kids always are drinking just to be social. Sometimes they're drinking to medicate as well, and that creates bigger problems. We will be back, folks. We'll take a break, continue the discussion, and uh, take a little further. We're going to talk about left-handed people up next with Leanna Tan. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, parents, you, you didn't just have these kids and then hope that they're going to grow up great. You got to be there, walk them, guide them. And alcohol use is one thing you could be guiding them on. Another, though, is uh, is something they may have been born with, according to our next uh, our next piece. What do Barack Obama, Richard Simmons, Oprah Winfrey, and Jack the Ripper have in common? They were all left-handed. Did you know that only 12% of the world's population is left-handed? You might be left-handed yourself, but you might uh, also you know, know people around the country and the world who have this wonderful gift. So today we have our producer, Leanna Tan. She's going to explain to us this rare phenomenon and how uh, some of the interesting quirks that might be coming from it. So the other day I was typing when suddenly I got this stabbing pain in my wrist. And then I couldn't write or lift my book or even turn a handle. You can't hurt me. But then, for the rest of the day, I entered into a whole new world of left-handedness. Yes. And my friend said that it was much better being left-handed than right-handed. So then it got me wondering if maybe there is a whole perspective of life I've been missing out on. I can show you the after doing a little research, I discovered we have superhumans lurking in our midst, people. Other kids don't have superpowers. I had to find one and bring them in for investigation. What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. All right, I have brought in a live specimen of left handers, very own Landon Moore. My first question. This is a sample IQ test question I found. Wait, are you serious? (laughs) Book is to reading as fork is to A, drawing, B, writing, C, stirring, D, eating. Eating. What? Oh my gosh, he's a genius. You're really smart. It's true. So anything lefthanded.co.uk, that website I found, says that lefties have a greater chance of being a genius or having a high IQ. I'd say that's true. I can handle things! I'm smart! Well, okay, I gotta see if you have more of these superpowers. Okay. Do you like swimming? Yeah, I do. All right, have you ever opened your eyes underwater? 
Yes. Can you please explain that experience to me? It's kind of painful. You get chlorine in your eyes. I don't know, you can't, you can't see very well. So you were blind? You couldn't see anything? Heart, you could hardly see anything. All right, this is false. I knew this was false. What does it say? Um, it says that left-handed people adjust more easily to seeing underwater. False! What were we doing exactly five months and 20 days ago at approximately 9 p.m.? April 2nd. They're good at math, too, I guess. Day before your birthday. Wow. Which means, didn't you have a birthday party the day before your birthday? <laughs> oh my gosh, you remembered! Love a love a dub dub! You did, didn't you? Yes! You did. Wow, this is true. It says that some left-handed individuals have better memories. But then again, how could you forget that event, so... It was a great birthday party. I have been told my whole life that I have a really good memory. Like, I remember things from, like, my earliest memory is when I was three and I got locked in a porta potty while we were camping as a family. I think it's because you were traumatized. But it also says that um, your family will have, like your kids, they'll have better memories. I hope so. I need to ask you a personal question. Not the first time. What was your score on your driver's test? Could you take the car to neutral? We just got passed by a street sweeper. Like in points? Yeah. I don't know. I got my you don't li- remember? I got my license. I know I got my license. How many accidents have you been in? I've never been in an accident while I was actually in a car. Oh, yeah, you got ran over by one. <laughs> I didn't get run over. I got hit by a car. Say what? Interesting, because that it says that left-handed people tend to be the target of right-handed people anger. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. No, but it says that you're more successful at learning to drive than right-handed people, but I don't think that's true either. I'd say, I would say I'm a good driver, and I've never been in an accident. If you had $1 million, what would you do with it? I would probably save a lot of it, slash invest a lot of it. But I think that you should like donate it to a charity. And a, a charity built for right-handed people. Because this says that left-handed males who have gone to college earn 13% more than their right-handed counterparts. Really? If I had a million dollars... So I'm right-handed, and I'm going to set up a charity funded by you to donate to right-handed people who struggle through college anyway and still get 13% less just because they were born right-handed. What discrimination? This is so unfair! I'll give you like a nickel or something. And left-handed people are also miserly people. Maybe. I just want to say, Landon, that I am so honored to be your friend and... Don't forget to donate to my right-handed charity. Left-handed ledges. Now I can ride all the way to the edge. All right, so I guess I'm not missing out on too much, except specialty scissors and exclusive emails from this website. But I am currently working on my ambidexterity, so I can become a superhuman driver, genius, and filthy rich miser. So don't worry, all you lefties out there who thought you were excluded and dejected from society. We recognize your powers and accept you for who you are. And Ned Flanders, the richest left-handed man in town. And I'll accept any donations to my right-handed charity by cash or check. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. the matt townsend show your guide on the side follow dr matt on twitter at dr matt show call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU this is the matt townsend show dr matt townsend now on byu radio byu radio
Welcome back, my friends, to the final hour of the week of the Matt Townsend Show. The 15th hour, we call it. Mm. Last and certainly not least. A long and winding road. (laughs) So good, my friends. And we have so much to discuss today. Uh, One thing we will be getting to, of course, are the movies with uh, parentpreviews.com. Because there's a new movie coming out, The Magnificent Seven. If you are into guns, and we know today, in today's day and age, guns are big in the United States. It's a Western. It's, it's a, a remake of a remake of a remake. True Blue Western. A, I told you, I was looking on Netflix. There's seven different versions of this movie if you want to watch. This is good. Seven Yule Brenner. Guns. Yule Brenner. Really? And the one that uh, probably people remember the most. Yeah. But, but even that was based on... Seventh Samurai. Yeah, there's a, there's a Seventh Samurai, which is, I like, think, the origin of the Magnificent Seven idea. Mm, really? I, I like the Muppets version of the Magnificent Seven. Uh, Kermit, Miss Piggy. Mm, Fozzie. Fozzie. That was a great one. Uh, less violent, Scooter. I think. Less violent than the one that's coming out today. The dog who plays piano. Animal. Beaker. Beaker. Of course. Was one of the seven. I'm trying to name seven. That's what I was like. I can't know. It's good stuff. So we will get to the movies. Also uh, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation as they are getting ready for the game with West Virginia. It's going to be a lot of fun. Listening to a podcast yesterday, they have a fun game going on. It's a national sports website. Will BYU score 20 points before Notre Dame gets a defensive sack? Interesting. Is, so is Notre Dame having a hard time sacking people? They're not, their defense isn't getting to the other team's quarterback to get a, yeah. a quarterback sack. And so they're like, is Notre Dame going to— Which will get, happen first? Which one? And they're calling it when it, this, this matchup is their Independence Day. Really? That's kind of a— That's cute. Yeah. Uh, the play on words. Just because BYU keeps showing up in games with a big name matchup, but they can't score 20 and points. And BYU is doing great on defense. Yeah. Just the offense just can't do they anything. They can't score! We'll talk to them. Also do a little hero of the day. We'll do a little news flush where we uh, try to flush a bunch of the stories that we've been working on and, you know, just didn't have time for. Plus, of course, we are not going to leave today without celebrating Restless Legs Awareness Day. When my legs get restless, I love ABBA. Isn't it awareness? Yeah. We're not celebrating the ailment. No, no, no. We're celebrating the awareness the, oh. of the restless leg syndrome. You didn't really make that clear. Yeah. Well, we're, we're celebrating like restless legs awareness day. It's like we're going to celebrate heart disease or something. Yeah, heart disease day. Yeah, you don't want to celebrate it. You want yeah. to make awareness of it. I like on heart disease day, I like to go celebrate by getting myself, a, getting a big pizza. Yeah, that's not the... And just sitting there. Yeah. So we, um, of course, we're not just only celebrating restless legs today. We're celebrating vegetarians. Hug a vegetarian day. From too much chow, I will never call you a cow. I respect you and cows. Don't use cow as an insult. If you eat every single fig, I will never call you a pig. I respect you and pigs. Don't use pig as an insult. Don't use pigs as an insult. Don't use animal names. They're innocent. That's a vegan rap song. Uh, By the way, not to be rap without the W. I respect you and sheep. How many times have you said, I'll take the vegan rap? But I think that's with a W rap. Right. Not just an RAP. Right. That's a real – that was a real rap. Good call. By two very – 
Very real. It's a wrap. Vegans. And they teach a great lesson. So one not to be forgotten. Um, Let's shoot it over to Sadie Nielsen and our headlines. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what is up? Tulsa County's district attorney announced Thursday that charges have been filed against Betty Shelby, the police officer who shot and killed Terrence Crutcher last Friday afternoon. The district attorney said in a press conference that the county will charge Shelby with first-degree manslaughter for the 40-year-old unarmed black man's death. Dash cam and helicopter footage showed Crutcher with his hands up in the air before Shelby fired at him, but the officer claimed he was non-compliant and that she felt threatened by him and that she sus- suspected him of being high on PCP. In filing the charges, the district attorney's office wrote that Officer Shelby acted unreasonably by escalating the situation while Crutcher attempted to surrender. Yahoo confirmed Thursday that they experienced a massive data breach at the hands of what was most likely a state-sponsored actors in late 2014. According to the company, the account information may have included names, email addresses, telephone numbers, dates of birth, hash passwords, and in some cases, encrypted or unencrypted security questions and answers. The ongoing investigation suggests that the stolen information did not include unprotected passwords, payment card data, or bank account information. And finally... What? London's Catnip Festival seeks to give cat lovers the opportunity to celebrate their favorite online videos. The November festival boasts a series of cat-themed activities such as a cat gymnasium, cat meme gallery, and more. Join us for a huge party celebrating the greatest cat videos that our furry overlords have to offer. The website states that a massive night of banging, caterwauling, music, cativities, and fierce feline performers. Let's music. make Let's make history. 15% of the profits, however, will be donated to local dog and cat shelters. Wow. That sounds like a party. It is a party. It is definitely something that I all think we should consider going to in November. You know what? Let me check my calendar, and then I'll have my people get back to your people. Okay. Whoa. That's a mad cat. Mad cat. Hey, you got to watch out for that mad cat disease. Um, thank you, Sadie, so much. Appreciate it. Wow. lot to celebrate. You know, it seems like people are just making some of this stuff up. No, this yeah. is all legit. It's too legit to quit. Restless Leg Awareness Day, Vegetarian Day, Hug a Vegetarian Day, Cat Nip, whatever day. Cat- Catapalooza. Catapalooza. <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, um, we there's just so much we could talk about on the show. And a lot of people, when you go watch the news, you see, you know, you see the same stories over and over. But not here. We we like to mix it up a little bit. Today, um, though, we did find a story about a gun-toting uh, suspect who the police in Day- Daytona are looking for. He robbed a pizza delivery man. But he's not just a thief. He's, he's kind of a Robin Hood. We're men. We're men in you see, what he does is he, he robbed a, at gunpoint a pizza delivery man. Took the pizza, the Mountain Dew, and then he offered pizza to an unknown male while running from the scene. So he takes the pizza. He doesn't just go hoard it and eat it himself. He takes the pizza from the rich, and he gives it to the pizza poor. Well, anyway, they're looking for him. He had an Uzi-style firearm. Ooh. So, yeah, instead of stealing from the rich, he's stealing from a 19-year-old acne-ridden minimum Kid wage. Just trying to make make it through college or whatever. Well, swinging around an automatic weapon. Seems kind of like a Robin Hood jerk. A little bit, yeah. But he offered him a piece of pizza. 
wonder if he was wearing tights. Look, man, I don't want to do this, but uh, do you want a piece of pizza? <laughs> okay, now get on the ground. Trenton Johnson <laughs> said the unknown man described as clean-shaven in his 20s offered him a slice of pizza as he went past. Huh. I wonder where Friar Tuck was. You always never trust a man in tights with an Uzi. Even if he's going to give to the poor, you know, the poor teenage guy. Words to live by. Mm-hmm. Daytona Beach, Florida. Well, that really tells you a lot about whatever story you're going to start I, with. I Dayline, love Daytona Beach. Florida. It's great and, you know, great, great race. Any um, any headlines we need to pay attention to, Terry, as we're saw wrapping the, up I the week? saw this yesterday. Uh, TV and movies, we've had some people on the show talking about how there's no new ideas. Right. Everything's Nothing just new. rehashed. It's Sequel City. It's just constant remakes. On TV, you've had in the recent years a show Hawaii Five O, right? It has some loose connections, like the the lead character is supposed to be the son of the guy from Hawaii Five O originally, and it's mainly popular because you get to look at Hawaii in the mm-hmm. middle of the winter. Right, people right. like that. Uh, MacGyver, the remake. Love I MacGyver. think that premieres tonight. They're actually remaking it. No one asked for it, but they're doing that. It has nothing to do with the other show. Really? And, yeah. Just no. I I don't believe there's any connection whatsoever. They're just calling it MacGyver and going on taking paper clips and glue and making you know whatever you need to get out of a Excellent. situation. Okay. Kind of unimpressive now that we have iPhones, but you know that's fine. Moving on. Uh, Lethal Weapon is another show that they made a TV a show remakes. out of a movie. So this is not a a a, a new concept, but uh, ABC is uh, putting out a new series um, soon. Not this year, but uh, in probably the next couple TV seasons. Magnum P.I. They're going to remake Magnum P.I. Awesome. Which, again, yeah. you're in Hawaii, yeah. a lot of good scenery, and, you know. Are they going to have the helicopter and the Ferrari? I don't know how, to what extent. Are they going to have the mustache? No. There's no word on if Tom yeah. Selleck will be in the show. Oh, what if he was like, what if he was the old man that ran the estate? Could be. I don't know if Higgins will be there. Higgins. But as it says, the series will follow Lily Tomlin, Tommy Magnum, who returns to Hawaii to take up the mantle of her father's PI firm. So it's a girl. Is Excellent. Lily Tomlin going to be on the show? No, Lily oh. Tommy Magnum. Okay. So her and her for her friends mix tropical beaches with the seedy underbelly of international crime and modern espionage, even as she tries to unravel the mystery of the blown spy operation that ended her career in naval intelligence. Not unlike her father. Interesting. Now, at the end of the series in the eighties, she this little girl shows up as being Magnum's presumed uh, a girl raised by Magnum's presumed dead wife, Michelle. Right. So right. I, I was watching and there's like some old scenes from the 80s show of, of Magnum P.I. holding his daughter, a little girl. And that's who this girl is supposed to be. So at the end of the series, her mother and a criminal czar stepfather actually die. Magnum reunites with his daughter, promising to raise her himself as he returned to his previous career as an officer in naval intelligence. So Mm. she comes back to take her father's job. They knew they couldn't replace Tom Selleck. Right. And try to do like, hey, here's a younger Tom Selleck and go that way. No word on if Tom Selleck, who's currently on a CBS show. You need continuity. But this show's on ABC. The current show that he's on is called Blue Bloods, and that's on CBS. Oh, so he may not be able to the make intrigue. that cross. But yeah, Magnum P.I. That is fascinating. That, I can see doing that. 
As long as there's a Ferrari involved. It has to be a Ferrari. And a really cool helicopter. Have to have a helicopter. Um, interesting news. Do you know who Jane Goodall is? I do. She used to be on um, the Johnny Carson show a lot, bringing her chimpanzees and a lot of her research. And mm-hmm. she, she was a she's a noted um, an expert with with animals and chimpanzees. She's an anthropologist, and she made a really interesting comment about the election. I she, saw this. about Donald Trump. She said Donald Trump reminds her of male chimpanzees and their dominance rituals. So I, you wonder if that's like a compliment. Because in many ways, she says, he acts like, you know, some of the monkeys Well, he talks about, she's been around. if you attack me, I'm going to attack you. And she talks about the hierarchy rituals and that they do it as a desire to kind of impress their rivals. I, I mentioned earlier, if you mention anything about his wealth, yeah, he will I – mean, there was a Comedy Central roast of, of uh, Donald Trump. And one of the things he listed that you cannot touch was how much money he's worth. You can't touch that. You can't make fun of that. You can't make jokes about that. It means so much to him. It's like part of his ego. Mm-hmm. His is how he sees himself is wrapped up in his money. You can, but he'll start stamping and slapping the ground and dragging branches and throwing rocks. Apparently, because that's what chimpanzees do, right? That's all they do. The no. more vigorous and imaginative the display, she says, the faster the individual is likely to rise in the hierarchy, huh. and the longer he is likely to maintain that position. So, a lot of what. Trump was doing, according to the anthropologist, is just moving up the hierarchy. So as he was diminishing and making fun of the GOP, he was just moving up the hierarchy. So now bing, he, bing, bing. Now he's won, yeah. and he has to, well, you know, through the primaries, he's won that battle, and now he has to face off with a woman. A woman. So, but no one's going to compare her to a chimpanzee. No. No. But she doesn't... Does she take an insult and then attack? Has she no. shown that behavior? It seems more like she just makes a few phone calls and then, I don't know, someone disappears. Allegedly. Allegedly. Right. <laughs> she, no, what she does is she just coughs it off. What are the odds that Donald Trump would bring up Vince Foster? <laughs> Excuse me. I think if, if Donald Trump. Oh, oh sorry. Okay. <laughs> Madam wow. Secretary, if Donald Trump is pushed and needs to gain hierarchy, he will bring up Vince Foster. Hmm. How many conspiracy theories involving the Trumps will he bring up? Over <laughs> under 10? 5? Well, I would say over 2. Okay. Under 3. 4. Okay. Under 4. That is the correct answer. So the high point would be 4, but at least 2. Yeah. Two conspiracy theories. If he's pushed. If he's not pushed, I think he'll just sit there and pick bugs out of his hair. Wow. Okay. I and mean, that's what chimps would do. But right, right. Because that, that's a sign that he's no longer. He'll be well behaved. Right. Yeah. I think he's got everything to win because I, everyone, they, they don't expect anything from him. I think there's a bingo game here. List all the conspiracy theories and just decide which ones you think are going <laughs> to. Hillary's go- office pools across they, the country. They say Hillary's going to try to use more humor. Ooh. <laughs> That'll be a change. But I'm not sure she pulls off humor. No. No, she's had a hard time with that in the past. Mm. It's er- going to be great. This is Monday? Monday night. Oh. Must see TV. Must see TV. I better get uh better get my popcorn for that one. 
Interesting stuff. Well, it's Friday, folks, and Fridays means movies. So we will uh, take a break. When we come back, Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com will be joining us. We'll be reviewing The Magnificent Seven, the release of that movie coming out. Looks like a good one. We'll find out what Rod thinks and give you some insight into how it might play out for your kids as well. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Because it's Friday, it means it's movies, so we like to bring on our guest, Rod Gustafson, from ParentPreviews.com. He's a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. Hello, Rod. How are you today? I'm good, Matt. How are you? Excelente and uh, ready for the weekend. And it seems like this is a movie where you're going to talk about The Magnificent Seven, which is a movie I I saw the trailer to, and I'm very interested in. This is very rare yeah. for me. Now, Matt, have you seen the original? No. From way back 1960, it was made, starring Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, all those all those big big names, Charles Bronson. Okay, well, that's unfortunate, Matt. You should you've got it. I don't know if it's on Netflix right now, or I'll go find it. I can find it. Yeah, you can rent it in many different places. Such a classic film. And I, I think it's worth watching the original and, and comparing the two. Now, I watched the original oh, probably about a year and a half, two years ago. And I, I and my problem is I watch so many movies, they start to fade quick. And, <laughs> and I think many people are going to, what they really want to know is how does this one compare to the original? And first of all, it is so great seeing a new Western mm-hmm. because... Like so, I, I got to admit, when I was a kid, my dad loved westerns, and I used to go, "Oh no, not another movie with cowboys and horses!" I, I didn't like them much. But you know, as I've gotten older, I've kind of I, I've come to appreciate the genre of the western. It's one of the most classic film genres that we have. Uh, it, it and in fact, it. The setups are so applicable to, you know, many people have compared many sci-fi movies. They're really westerns. When you when you take off all the flashing lights and gizmos, you're really down to a western. And so it really is one of the most um, uh, enduring ways of telling a story. So it's cool seeing a new one that's been shot, you know, in all these great high-resolution digital cameras and and with the great sound as well. And uh, by the way, James Horner does the soundtrack on this, and he is just, he was one of my favorite composers, and of course he tragically died in a plane crash about, I think, a year and a half right, ago now. Yeah. So this will be this will be one of the last movies that we will that we will hear his work on, and the score is wonderful. Mm. He, uh, of course, the original Magnificent Seven had that classic theme that dun 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 dun. Yeah, yeah. I won't sing anymore, I promise. But and he has taken elements of that and put it into the score here, and it comes off really well. So. Awesome. Anyhow, but how's the movie? Yeah. It's, you know, it's such a classic Western, and it really comes across well. My biggest concern about it is there is a lot of, I mean, there's a gunfight in the old one, too, but this one, boy, countless, countless people are killed. Um, they really make the army a whole lot bigger, 
And, uh, and I think, so I think this one takes the violence up a notch, which is unfortunate. And it does it at the cost of the story. In the old one, it is a small Mexican community where there's a big bad guy bully that's trying to take the place over. And then the story setup, I shouldn't assume everybody knows what the story is. The setup is, is that there's this bad guy who wants to take over the town. And then these, the, another guy, he's a bounty hunter, comes into town. This is the new movie. Comes into town, and uh, and well, actually he meets a the warm a woman from the town where the bad guy comes. He meets her in another community, and she begs him to come and help them with this bully. He was running a mining company. The bad guy is, and he just wants everybody out of the town. He's chasing them out. So this bounty hunter, who is an incredible shot, he puts together this team of of people, and he manages to find six other guys, and all of them have kind of colored and checkered past. They've they've done they've done a few things wrong, or at least some of them have. Another guy is a Native American. What What's interesting about this one is Denzel Washington plays the main bad guy. There's Native American. There's a, an Asian guy who's really incredible with um, with darts and knives and whatnot. So this is kind of the United Nations version <laughs> of Fantastic Seven. There's great diversity in this. But these guys come together, and they, des- they decide that they are going to try and help this community. And so they have about a week to try and prepare the people in the community to learn how to fight. And they're the biggest bunch of wusses, the people in this community that you've ever seen in a Western. And so they're trying to teach them how to shoot and how to, how to defend themselves. And then, of course, the big moment comes when the bad guy comes with what looks like it must be 200 other people following him. And, uh, and then there's the big shootout in the town. And, uh, so yeah, so that's the setup. It's, it certainly is, it's suspenseful and, uh, it's got some great moments in it involving faith as well, which I really appreciated. We see a lot of people in this movie that pray for help and, and that type of thing mm. as well. And, and we don't get that much in, in modern movies. So I really appreciated that as well. So, so a, a notch down for the violence, but, um, with, Everything else, you know, it works out pretty good. So it probably be be great on this. Okay, and with a, a big warning to parents, uh, this is not a movie for little kids. This is one you maybe take your teens to if if they're interested in going and 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 seeing what a western is. Because I think there's probably many sixteen year olds maybe they've never seen a western, and this is kind of a cool thing. Oh, to that's share great! With. Might be a great way, yeah, to get your kids, you know, back into. Loving the genre. It's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you don't want to spend the money on the movie, go go rent the original Magnificent Seven, which I, I, I would give that one a B plus or an A minus. Hmm. I liked it a little more because I just felt like this one, it, they use more violence than is necessary to try and bring their cross. And by the way, the violence is not overly um, explicit. We don't see a lot of blood and gore, but I, I gave up counting. Usually I... Usually I give a bit of a head count, but this is one of those movies where so many people get killed. Forget it. You can't even begin to count how many there are. Just watching the trailer, I've seen gun people killed by guns, knives, and arrows. Yes, yes. Yes, it's, it's very diverse in killing methods that all belong to the different ethnicities right. that are represented in the movie. See, they're a team. It's, it's, 
Yeah, yeah. It's, cool. uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting that way. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Well, Rod, we appreciate the uh, the review. It's great stuff and suggest to everybody, go check out the website, parentpreviews.com, a wonderful resource for parents uh, to understand really what's going on in the movies for their kids. We appreciate you, Rod. Have a great weekend, and we will uh, take a break when we come back, do a little news flush and then get ready for our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out uh, their final thoughts about the BYU-West Virginia game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Today's episode of the Matt Townsend Show is brought to you by Cronuts. Cronuts, so good, you'll step over a dead body to get one. Oh man, will we ever. Welcome back to the show. Uh, In studio, Sadie just brought in a surprise. Sadie went and purchased some Cronuts. We actually have real live Cronuts in the studio. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. They're cronutastic. And we are so excited to try them. Boy, I'm so glad, A, they're sponsoring the show. Yes. You do know that there are people in this building that are listening to us say that we have cronuts in the studio. Yeah, but we're locking the doors. Okay. So nobody... This is a code red, cronut lockdown. It's pretty much a private celebration. Yes. In the studio. Man, Sadie, what motivated you to go out and buy the cronuts? So good, by the way, we're stepping over a dead body for you know, I just, I really appreciate you guys. And there's just some times when I really want a cronut, you know, <laughs> that I'm so willing to go get them. I just want to let you know I stepped over like 10 bodies. Did to you get really? Them. Why are so many people dying their cronuts? I don't know. Can you do your hero story today about Sadie? Sadie's already <laughs> won the hero of the day story. Uh, I don't know who the other hero is because, you know, he's not going to match. He didn't bring us cronuts. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Oh, Sadie. You're the best. What are we going to do in years when you're gone? I don't know. I guess I'll just have to continually bring cronuts to you guys. So You, you know what? You'll me. always be a part of our lives. I appreciate that. Very You'll much. always be our cronut. Cronut. <laughs> cronut captain. Captain, captain. My captain. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Sadie. Um, we're, we got to take a little time here and do a little news flush. Uh, just certain stories that we want to get through. It's going to be very hard today because I, it's hard to just stare at a box of cronuts and not want to dive in. Um, the door wasn't locked. Terry got in, but I think there's one for him. I would maybe make sure you'd lock the door. Uh, snub-nosed dogs, you may not believe this, are more affectionate and better guard dogs, according to the research. Research um, that I found on Discovery News uh, it may explain why there's such a growing obsession in the country for short-nosed dogs. <laughs> Besides their owners finding them cute, short-nosed dogs are more affectionate and make better guard dogs than long-nosed dogs, according to a new study. See, so those Doberman Pinschers dogs, they're not, they're not all they're cracked up to be for a guard dog. It would be better to get just a, a little snouty, just short legged dog says who says the experts animal welfare experts they are um 
They're, one of the problems, though, with the short-nosed dogs, they're just not as fast. They can't cover as much ground as, mm. let's say, a German Shepherd. Right. And they may not be seen as, a, as intimidating. Maybe more cute. Yeah, cute, like a little pug. Right. He's not really going to terrorize you yeah. like a Doberman would. But they do. They make a lot of noise. They pay a little more attention. They can gnaw you to death, I guess. Yeah. They can just bark until you just got to let them out. Oakley, Oakley. <laughs> so a little uh, important point to note. So um, snub-nosed dogs over the big long-nosed dogs. Flush it. Flush it. Got to get rid of it. Found this one this week. Thought it was interesting. An 18-year-old from Austria is actually suing her parents for posting embarrassing and revealing photos of her on Facebook for the past seven years. <laughs> As reported by the paper The Local, and the anonymous young woman's lawyer, Michael uh, Ramey, claims her the, the client's pay, uh, parents have non-consciously or non-consensually, that's the word, okay. non-consensually shared around 500 to 600 images on – or 500 images to their 700 Facebook friends of their daughter doing everything from getting her diaper changed to, you know, the events of potty training. Oh, come on! Really? Uh, the lawyer says he was seeking financial compensation for his client as well as a court order for her parents to take the pictures down. He believes he can prove the photos have, quote, violated her rights to a personal life. Case goes to trial in November. Right. What you do know, you think? That kid needs a spanking. And then I'd record it and I'd put it up on YouTube. Yeah. So, you know, flush it. Flush it. Uh, do trees sleep? You ever asked that question? Because guess what they do? <gasps> Observations with laser scanners show that trees have a day and a night rhythm, just like the rest of us. Uh, according to um, some of the experts, some trees that, that they've been researching live up to 500 years old. <laughs> that, guy, that tree's a loud sleeper. Yeah. The idea of an oak or a spruce tree taking a snooze seems a bit bizarre, but for the first time, scientists have observed physical changes in trees that correspond in some ways to sleep in humans or in animals. And we do, and just like humans, they have a day and a night rhythm. Researchers from Austria, Finland, and Hungary use laser scanners to scan two trees and scrutinize a cloud of millions of different points across their surface area. From that, they learned that trees actually move overnight. A phenomena that scientists dating back to Charles Darwin have observed in smaller plants. It's pretty hmm. cool. They actually can move many centimeters uh, uh, during that time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> our results, Don't you know? Our results show that the whole tree droops during the night. By the way, who doesn't? I droop. Droop during the night. Nine o'clock, I, I start the downhill start slide. Drooping. Yeah which can be seen as a position change in leaves and branches. Hmm. It just relaxes. The changes are not too large, only up to 10 centimeters for trees with a height of about five meters. Hmm. It's still a lot, 10 yeah, centimeters. Quite a bit. Anyway, and then, you know, they kind of perk up and wake up the minute sunrise comes up. They start reaching for the sky. There you go. But we got to flush it. Flush it. One more? Yeah. Police are searching for a gang in East London. Why? Who used a mobility scooter as a getaway vehicle <laughs> after a raid on a pharmacy. Really? The Metropolitan Police have released uh, t uh, uh, security cam footage of a bald man driving away from the shop with cash from the till. Three other men also took part in the raid. The same four men are suspected of being involved in another burglary at a cosmetic center. 
It is unknown whether they used a mobility scooter Hope in it was the charged. earlier raid. So they're using it like a jazzy scooter to get away. Come on, boys. They just jump on it. What do they go, it. five miles an hour? I guess. The security video I saw, yeah, really slow moving down the street. Did someone yell, yee-haw! Magnificent Seven. That's how they exit. So apparently the, the mobility scooter was at the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. They have one on display, and so they just jumped there. on it and took off. They're like, here we go. That's They're a good just idea. Making fun of everybody. So if you're in London, you see someone, a bald man wearing dark clothing and a dark mobility scooter, please call the police. Mm. Flush it. Okay, well done. Good stuff. Uh, we'll be back, folks. We've got to come back and visit our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. We're going to find out what they think about the big game tomorrow with BYU and West Virginia. Stick with us, folks. We're wrapping it up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The music they were playing as the airplane left on the way to West Virginia. BYU playing West Virginia tomorrow. Let's throw it down to our good buddies, Spencer and Jerem. Find out what's going to be on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. West Virginia. <laughs> going to give me a cool down by the creek. <laughs> Did you see the Boney Fuller video, West Virginia Tourism? No. Matt, you haven't seen the West Virginia Tourism video? I'm going to go look it up right now. It sounds really good. You're aware of who Boney Fuller is, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the best things that he's ever produced. I really? dare say number one. I have never had a case of the giggles on this show, knock on wood. I was struggling a bit yesterday to keep that record intact. We watched it in between uh, segments during a commercial break, and we were laughing so hard. It's a big, it's four minutes long. Is that it? That's it. Holy cow. Okay, I'm going to, oh, okay. So you just, do you want to do a line from it, Jerem? Is that what you were just imitating? No, uh, he, no. Jerem's just been impersonating what he thinks West Virginia people are like all week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of them can read, Yeah, get them coons in West Virginia. Not <laughs> <laughs> playing into any stereotypes yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, it's, yeah, no, none there. It's like... It's all right. There are none that are ever brought out about Utah either. Oh, it's, I'm it's sure, It's yeah. Beverly Hillbillies. Where's Jim Varney when you need him? You know what? We, we've actually got... Uh, we've got a really good... Um, uh, you remember my my idea about Gator Ball? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, see, now I could see that happening in West Gator Virginia. Gator Ball up in Morgantown! But do you know that Gator Ball is, it's real now. BYU Broadcasting is going to start broadcasting a show called Gator Ball. That's a lie, man. Part of the new line. No, it's not. It's Why are October, you lying? October it's not. It's, on BYU TV. You know, if you would listen to the to BYU radio, you would hear the promos for Gator Ball. Let's let's hear it. Let's hear the promo. Well, it's a it's it's two minutes long, but it it really is. It's a real. It's true. I promise. You sounded like one of them coons in the corner when you got him on there. It's not as good as Boney Fuller's version, but it's uh, it's it's pretty good. Hey, what do you think about tomorrow's game? What's it, it is an interesting matchup yeah. because BYU is struggling on offense. This needs to be a game where they break out. West Virginia's defense stinks. They have some speed, but they've not played that well against two mediocre to bad offenses in Missouri and Youngstown State. Meanwhile, West Virginia's offense traditionally very good. 
uh, and the BYU defense has been balling so far this year. So I love it. Yet, it's on the East Coast. BYU has struggled uh, in their East, Eastern time zone games. Uh, the last 11, they're 2-9. and nine. So BYU, BYU needs to win this game. So I'm intrigued, huh. to say the least. Yeah. It's exciting. Is this... Is this is it going to happen? Because I, I I don't like getting all up and amped and getting my face and my chest painted. This is this is the nature of a BYU fan. Yeah, get excited, hope it turns out. Yeah, get your paint on. That's a sports fan in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's this is how that's that's why we you got to go it. there emotionally, right? Because if you the don't pay off, right? But there's also the risk of the. It's like being in a relationship. You're, yeah, you're in a relationship with BYU. It's like yeah, it's like a marriage. It's like a really, it's like a marriage. I was gonna say a bad marriage, but it's not a bad marriage. No, it depends on how many wins you have. There. It's just been abusive at times, <laughs> right? It's just it can be emotionally. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Um, are you guys? Are you doing anything else? Loaded we're, guest lineup. Were either of you involved, by the way, in the soccer game last night? No, uh, was where calling the volleyball match. Noah built an arc. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah seriously. Listen. We were scheduled to call the soccer match originally. And then Divine Intervention switched it. Tender mercy. <laughs> Seriously. No, the better matchup is what switched it. BYU opened up conference play in volleyball against uh, Santa Clara. Wow. And so you thought. BYU well, kicked butt last night against Santa Clara. Yes. Dominated. Yes. So And uh, in soccer. 7 nothing against Denver. We, Brigham op- versus we opted the Pioneers. to go for the conference opener in volleyball over BYU women's soccer against Denver. Just... For a number of reasons. And I, <laughs> when I kept hearing the weather reports, I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you for allowing <laughs> right. me to be inside. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Like they were worried about getting electrocuted. Yeah, lightning delay, weather delay. It was, it was nuts. There was a tornado that touched down in Utah yesterday. I know, which is very rare. Hardly ever. Yeah. Man. Anyway, okay. sorry to get off track, man. Today's show is a tornado of sorts. We okay. have ESPN's Merrill Hodge. Ooh. On the show, his he's the father of Bo Hodge, who's yeah. the third string quarterback for Brigham. What's the only reason he would change quarterbacks? We'll ask him that. Ooh, well, because uh, his son—that's he has the a reason. strong opinion. Besides, right. not okay. Merrill, okay, for okay. Tanner Megan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the radio analyst for West Virginia, his name is Dwight Wallace. He will join us as well. How mm-hmm. good is West Virginia? What do they know about themselves after two games? Because they played. Uh, struggling uh, Missouri team. Mm-hmm. They played Youngstown State, an FCS team, and they've had a bye. So what do they know about their team at this point? BYU, you, we have a good idea because they played three Power 5 teams. Right. Already. West Virginia, not so much. Boy, this is a big game. Plus, they got to travel. That's a, they're, they're already there. Now. They're, 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 already they're actually there. in the, uh, it, touring the mall right now in D.C. Oh, really? Okay. By mall, I mean, yeah. yes. Yeah, the mall. mall. Yeah. Not a mall. <laughs> The like mall. a Macy's. They're yeah, all at they, the Macy's They've been to the Lincoln DC. Memorial. They're walking around right now. Interesting. You know what's funny? When I, when I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time in high school, I was like, National Mall? Oh, sweet. Thinking there'd be like roller coasters uh-huh. there and all oh, sorts yeah, of stores uh, and stuff. H&M and boring. It's great. Nowhere to shop. It was so boring. <laughs> You're like, a bunch of statues of dead people? Such a waste. It is really cool, man. When you go back there and like you get into the, the heart of what's really going on there, it's amazing. Oh, you know what? And it's all within driving distance. You can see so many things, incredible sights in just a few hours. I'm telling you. By the way, I can't stop watching this West Virginia tourism video. I've never seen – Four minutes and 20 seconds. I mean, guns, ammo, just really creative people doing 
creative things. It's so fun. Like, you need to listen to the narration. We're going to do I know it. you're probably just seeing the pictures right now. Accurate. Yeah. That's the crazy thing. Now, what he did is he took, he took an actual tourism video narration and then <laughs> added some of his own twists and video to the actual words. And there's a, her, there was know. actually a guy getting his tooth pulled. Sorry, I'm assu- Luckily, they didn't show. I'm assuming all of Boney that. Fowler is a he because he's. Yeah. It's a he football player, but who knows? You're right. Yeah. You're right, Jerem. It, well, it could. Be, yeah, it might be. It might be the guy. That's right. Yeah. We don't know who. It we is. don't know. Whoever we don't is, know. They're awesome. You guys, it's going to be good, and your show obviously is going to be great as as always. Loaded. Merrill Hodge, ESPN NFL analyst. Locked yeah. and loaded. I mean, it's it's Jaron went through all of that, so it's it's yeah. it's loaded. And let me just let me just say as we're as as we let you go. Happy uh, Restless Leg Syndrome, Let Restless Leg Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that's a big one for you guys. And also yep. happy, happy Vegetarian Day. Hug a Vegetarian Day. I'm going to go eat a steak today. I, you know what? I'm going to come hug now you guys. Now that I've heard that. Yeah. That's such a Jerem thing to say and do. It is. Okay, have a great show. I know you got to go wax and wax on, wax off. Knock them dead. Stay sweet. Stay dry. Bye-bye. Thank you, Matthew-san. Go. Peace out. Don't use pigs and insults. Animals are innocent. Don't be speciesist. Never use Another shout out. This is the vegan rap. Or a human. Uh, without the W. Innocent. Don't be speciesist. Never use the name of an animal as an insult for a human. Don't call people pigs, cows. No, that's an, you don't use the name of an animal. They're, that's an insult. <sighs> Sad. Okay, a little uh, news for you out of Florida, believe it or not. A Florida man is accused of stealing more than $10,000 worth of lottery tickets, and he was arrested after posing for a photo. After posing for a photo where he tried to cash one of them. The county sheriff's office said the property crimes detective arrested Christopher Sykes, 24, last week after he allegedly used a hatchet to shatter a window at a convenience store in Ocala. Uh, on August 16th, and he stole the entire case of Florida lottery scratch-off tickets worth more than ten grand. Surveillance video from the store indicated that the thief was a white male, but his face was obscured by a mask. Sheriff's office said Sykes tried to uh, basically cash in a $1,000 winning ticket at the convenience store, but the ticket came up as declined, possibly stolen. That's when the cops were called. You lose! Good day, sir! <laughs> You can't, you can't steal lotto tickets that are all marked and then go back and try to win. Yes, might have gotten away with it too. It wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs. I'm telling you, you got to use your head, kids. I try to coach the cons so that you can be a better con, but it uh, doesn't always work. doesn't always work. What am I supposed to do? Also, as you know, um, because it is uh, it's such a special day, we want to have a, a special shout out to one of the greatest humans on earth. She's a wonderful woman, an incredible worker. Sadie Nielsen um, is the hero of the day. Shares the hero of the day. Yeah, uh, I don't know what it is. She's been with us forever. We love her to death, and um, today just. She just seems even more special. Why is that? Any I th- particular reason? I, it's always that way with me. I've always felt that way about her. It's just today it kind of came to the surface when she walked in with some cronuts. Today's episode of the Matt Townsend Show is brought to you by Cronuts. Cronuts. 
so good you'll step over a dead body to get one. <sighs> we didn't have to today because Sadie went out and she stepped over the dead bodies for us. At least 10. What a great lady. Sadie, what a great lady. <laughs> Put that on a meme. And uh, our final hero of the day is a police officer that talks a man out of suicide just bringing up football. Check this out. A police officer in South Carolina used a suicidal man's love of football to take him off a ledge. In an incident captured on the officer's body camera, the man could be seen sitting on an overpass ledge and saying, I don't want to live. The officer, Michael Blakemore uh, of the Columbia Police Department, began trying to get the man to talk about something that he did have to live for. First, uh, Blackmore said, asked the, about the father, the man's mother. And the man said that his mother had died. Blackmore then asked about uh, whether the man wanted to watch football this weekend and got him talking about his favorite teams. You like watching football? Who's on your team? Redskins? Blakemore said, on Sunday when you're watching the Redskins play, you'll look back and be like, man, what was I thinking Friday night? You're just having a bad night, the officer told him. Washington plays Dallas on Sunday, something Blakemore figured the man would want to see. I'll see, I'll see you sometime next week, and I'll say, hey, how about those Redskins, Blackmore said. I'm definitely going to pull for them when they play Dallas because I hate Dallas. After several minutes, the man allowed Blakemore and, uh, or Blackmore and another officer to approach him, take his hand, and pull him um, back to the sidewalk. Blackmore told the, uh, the uh, state uh, that he, he talked the guy down just simply using football. It was pretty much just basic stuff. Basic stuff. And that's what heroes do, folks. They're there when people need them, and they find a way to reach them. And so a little challenge for all of us over the weekend. Let's pay attention to the people in our lives, and let's maybe make a little more effort to talk about what they want to talk about, to connect to people. Human beings need connection, and uh, we, you know, if we don't have connection, and if they don't have connection, then the world seems pretty dreary. Our goal on this show is to help you see there's good in the world. You're part of that good. And if we just pay a little attention to each other, a lot of magical things can happen. That's the show. Check us out on Facebook, on iTunes, on TuneIn. On, uh, it's everywhere, folks. We're on Stitcher. And look us up on BYURadio.org. Until Monday, make, make it a great one, and we'll talk again Monday.